You know, I have a personal interest to see the businesses in our outdoor community thrive and prosper. And that is why I want to introduce you to the Charles Jordan Group, the boutique Atlanta-based award-winning consulting firm that is raising sales for many outdoor businesses by delivering strategic marketing platforms. What they've done for hunting resorts, gun manufacturers, retailers, and other outdoor businesses is simply remarkable. So visit them at www.charlesjordangroup.com. I also want to talk about the Minority Outdoor Alliance Festival. Of course, now presented to you by Yukonuba. Minority Outdoor Alliance Festival is going to be on October 16, 2021. It'll be our first annual get-together, um, and we are expecting a whole, whole, whole lot of good stuff um, from a fly fishing uh, demos, bird dog uh, demos with me and Neil. Uh, what else we got going on, man? We got um, a clays tournament, actually, that morning. Um, you know, that'll be going on from 9 to 12, and a whole lot more, and we will be awarding our... Uh, scholarship recipient matter of fact our bird dog scholarship recipient so anyway um go get tickets man <laughs> and get tickets to the dinner too um the general admission tickets are ten dollars but the dinner tickets you get a lot of good food and 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 we can go through the whole awarding thing and 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 give it to uh someone i'm really honored to to, to talk about anyway go get your tickets at like i was saying before MinorityOutdoorAlliance.org And we appreciate your support Everyone uh, Man, brought to you by the S. Kent Rock, Rockwell Foundation Orvis Yukonuba Sporting Dog It's going to be a good time, man It's going to be a good time The Gundog Notebook Podcast is presented to you by Onyx Hunt, crafted to be the number one digital mapping resource for hunters, anglers, and landowners. Download the Onyx Hunt app from your phone's app store today and use my promo code GDN20 for 20% off your Onyx subscription. A bird dog's drive can override his ability to recognize he's heating up pushing it too far and he's at risk of a dangerously high core body temperature. It's our responsibility as dog owners to know when our dogs might overheat and take preventative action. Exercise-induced heat-related illness, or HRI, can affect even the most well-conditioned bird dog. That's why Yukonuba is spreading the word. Your dog can develop exercise-induced HRI anytime. But there's additional risk in the preseason when it's hot. Make sure you're hydrating, conditioning, and acclimating your bird dog to the heat. Learn how to identify the signs of exercise-induced HRI and what to do if you see them at www.yukanubasportingdog.com backslash HRI.
So there's a couple of things going on right now that all converge to this wonderful, wonderful firearm that I am sitting here uh, cleaning. That firearm is an AYA number 453. So I'm sitting right here in the Gundog Notebook Studios. I'm, you know, in a place full of art and imagination. And that is actually what AYA definitely stands for. Um, a true work of art, honestly, simply does not appear out of thin air. And a true work of art um, begins as an idea in the mind of an artist who then gives it physical shape and form using his innate skill and imagination. If the end product is to be genuine, the process of creation needs to remain uninterrupted from start to finish. And that's how we like to do here in the Gundog Notebook Studios where I got my artwork, my paintings, I got dogs outside. Everything that I'm doing is a work of art and my firearm should not fall short of that. So guys, go check out AYA-FineGuns.com to check out some really, really, really fascinating and, and, and compelling and stunning works of art in the form of a fine heirloom gun. All right. I want to say thanks to my next, next, next sponsor, um, Biomatrix Supplements. Biomatrix specializes in all natural products created to maximize the health and performance of your animals. Started by veterinarians, Biomatrix products are made with only scientifically proven ingredients. You can check them out at Biomatrix-Supplements.com. Use my promo code GUNDOG10. Get yourself 10% off at checkout, guys. I also want to just do a quick thank you and shout out to my affiliates, Dakota283. Make sure you use my promo code TGDN10. Get 20% off your order at checkout. And also for Garmin, thank you, Garmin, for everything that you've done and the technology that you guys are providing in the field. Um, along with Cable Gangs, Mr. Brennan Landry, I want to thank you as well, along with your son. And of course, I want to shout out my own kennel, Cheyenne Kennels, because I'm working with some of the best lines in the country right now. Um, I just got to build them up on my own, you know, just got to do my own little thing. But I got the pedigrees that I want to work with. And I'm excited to bring these dogs up to the forefront Another thing, I want you guys to go and check out my Gundog magazine piece. Um, in this recent 40th anniversary issue, um, I got a piece in there called Red Hills Reminiscences. So uh, check that out, man. There's some some cool horseback stuff in there. And uh, I really enjoyed that. I think, you know, out of, out of a lot of the projects that I've done, um, not that they're not, you know, that, not that they're all not memorable, but that one is was just really special um that one was really 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 special for me so um yeah man check it out go get gundog magazine um thank you callie and the rest of the the, the gundog magazine team for for the opportunity to, to get out there and do it and land limited and broad street media as well for for getting out there and chopping it up and doing some film stuff we got stuff coming up uh down a pipeline from uh, land limited soon some dope photos from Broad Street Media coming out too. So anyway, thank y'all guys. And then I run down the list and then I look at my table right here in front of the microphone is a bottle of Real Spirits Distilling Company straight malt whiskey 
pot distilled in small batches. Partially finished in port barrels. Anyway, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, to the good folks at Real Spirits Distilling for making such a dang good whiskey. Um, and I'm and I'm I'm pleasantly thrilled to be able to uh have a drink or have a cup of it while we record this podcast so thank you guys um for 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 everything that you guys are doing for the uh libations industry all right i i definitely feel all the love coming out of texas so guys go check out real spirits distilling company once you get out of texas hit up my boy davin on instagram he's whiskey river chronicle and uh, you know, catch up with him. He's really, really knowledgeable about everything. Uh, you know, real spirits distilling and everything like that. Uh, you know, under that umbrella is. So give him a call, guys, or or not give him a call. Give him a DM. But anyway, thank y'all. Um, and it's good. <laughs> it's it's good. Anyway, moving on. Before we get into the episode, just a couple of uh, I guess. You know, some things I've been thinking about per usual um, before we get too deep into it. But I uh, I ran Chloe and Jughead at Hollywood Farms the other day, and I'm really, really, really liking the both of their range, um, cooperation and, and, and adaptation of my singing and stuff like that. Um, Miss Ann, Miss Loveridge Ann, she will be uh, moving out of Cheyenne Kennel. She has been sold, and it she's a wonderful dog, um, and I'm, I'm actually glad to be selling her to um, the gentleman that I'm selling selling her to. Um, so thank you. But and 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 Anne is <laughs> by far my most stylish dog. But um, just one running big enough for me. That's all. But God, that dog can point. Um, I also done took in two of my newest, youngest pup, Drip. I done took in his two litter mates, uh, a brother and a sister. Uh, Wink, the sister, and and Elvis, the brother, and so I will be working on getting them started for uh, Mr. Wyatt. You know, it's just a, just a favor. You know, and nice dogs, really nice dogs, and uh, Drip is is quite incredible. So you know, stay tuned for that. But anyway, guys, once we get into the episode, man, you are going to be listening to um, Ed Arnett, um, the chief scientist for. Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, um, a good friend of mine. And of course, I want to shout out the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership and Whit Fosberg and all the good folks there. We also just hung out with in Orlando. So um, stay tuned, guys. It's a very good episode. And, and I definitely owe Ed a visit out to his part of the country. And uh, we'll get there. So anyway, thank you all for tuning in to another episode of the Gundog Notebook. Stay tuned for an episode with Ed Arnett. No, man, it's 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 good to finally like visually meet you, man. You're you are 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 <laughs> hands down the most interesting human being on the planet. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I have people that would argue with you on that one. Man, <laughs> I was I was that's what takes me so I am like a, a kind of a nut job when it comes to like who I'm podcasting with and like, you know, just like what I want to talk about and or, or where the conversation can go. 
And dude, you got a long resume. <laughs> I uh I am a generalist. I've done a little bit of everything. The old jack of all trades and a master of a couple of things. Well, clearly, because I was like, yo, um, when you were like, yeah, let's podcast on on July 7th. I was like, perfect, because I need that time to look it up. Like, just kind of do the background (laughs) research, man. But it's, it's a pleasure to finally talk to you. Uh, pleasure to meet you too, Daryl and Chad. So yeah, look forward man. to it. That's that's it. So dog, dog dog people always find a way to talk to each other somewhere down the road. Somehow, so. <laughs> man, and and it, it somehow somewhere. Look, and it's so funny. Like I've I've heard you on quite a, a few other podcasts, man. So you know, I guess my frame of reference is is what I'm hearing, you know, from there. But it's you know, kind of crazy to kind of chat with you now, man, and 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 just brainstorm <laughs> and all of that is cool. Yeah, absolutely. It's, Hopefully, we get to do more around the campfire and and uh, hunting birds. <laughs> That'll be good. Well, that's gonna be um, that's the goal. That's I think that's okay. where we need to steer this conversation. I agree. <laughs> we need to we need to throughout this podcast determine how we gonna get out to um get me out west um because yo i actually need to come out there anyway man i got a dog that got some wheels on him yeah well we got plenty of country to run on right. i'm starting to think my new little one's gonna have a lot of wheels too so you kind of need be a big runner there. yeah you do you do <laughs> you need to cover some ground you bet yeah i'm i'm out there so you are in because you covered quite a few states you are in where are you at now or oregon what no, I lived I lived in Oregon for a number of years. I okay. live in Colorado now. Gotcha. I live just south of Fort Collins. That's a little right. town called Loveland, Colorado. Yep. But you just but I, no, but you just where did you six just hours come? I was gonna say, where did uh, you just come from to get your pup? Oh, I drove up to Minnesota to get him. Okay. That's where I that's where I picked up the pup. But within five hours of me I can be in multiple states. And you know, great bird hunting, and and uh, maybe within seven hours, I can hit New Mexico. I can be in Nebraska, Kansas easily, Wyoming easily, and a couple extra hours, I can buzz up to Montana. So, yeah, yeah, Colorado is a pretty good, pretty good, uh, pretty good centralized location to pivot from and yeah. get lots of. Y'all got a whole bunch lots of stuff. Species. Now, yeah. is that? Do you think career-wise? Um, I'm sorry. I just kind of dropped on into the podcast because I got 50 million different questions. But like, um, is this a thing where like living in Colorado, you think that has a huge effect on like the biological research that you do? Like, is is does it help to live in Colorado or does or or how does that work with your profession? Well, it helps to live where you're working and, you know, and studying things. I, I mean, you know, TRCP is a policy Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. I shouldn't be throwing acronyms around. <laughs> you know, we're, we're a D.C.-based policy organization. I'm our chief scientist. But I was afforded the luxury of living, you know, out west because I started working on energy and leading our energy program, which, you know, energy issues are, are global and certainly yeah. continent-wide, U.S.-wide, but uh, we were concentrating a lot in the west. So I was allowed to live anywhere in the West and we chose Denver, just north of Denver and kind of the front range area. So my wife, you know, could, could follow her career path and, uh, and I could do mine as well. But I wanted to be near Fort Collins because I always like being near an, an academic institution. Okay. And, 
you know, I wanted to teach and eventually kind of work my way into a affiliate faculty position at Colorado State. And now I teach there. So, yeah. but, you know, when I was doing like my master's and PhD work, I was living right where I was doing the research. So it's, it's helpful. Yeah. Now, when I was doing some work on bats and wind energy, I, I was traveling all over the country working on those, those critters. So. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> so let's start there. Let's start okay. with. There's multiple paths there you could take. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I, I was like, all right, I, I see what you, what you going to do here, man. Um, we got a, we got a lot of different routes we can go, but what I am, where I do want to start, I guess, is like what what made you get to to bat research and and explain to me exactly what that trajectory looked like, um, and what specifically you were studying in 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 terms of bat conservation, um, and and wind energy. Sure, uh, you know. I'll go a little bit further back on kind of why I wanted to be a biologist because I really didn't start out saying I want to be a bat biologist. I just knew I wanted to study animals. I was obsessed yeah. with animals when I was a kid. I used to watch this show that uh, some are old enough to remember called Wild Kingdom with Marlon I Perkins. Remember, I and remember Wild Kingdom. Jim Fowler. Yeah. Yep. And I was a religious watcher of that show. And I actually met Marlon Perkins when I was eight years old because yeah. he was the curator. He was kind of like Jack Hanna, the contemporary Jack Hanna, okay. you know, curator at uh, the Ohio Zoo, I believe, and, uh, you know, at the Columbus Ohio Zoo, and um, Marlon Perkins was, they had the same role at um, at uh, the St. Louis Zoo, mm-hmm. I grew up north of St. Louis, so, so I was obsessed with the show, and I just knew I wanted to do something with animals, but I didn't know what the profession was, you know, most kids know the the standard professions of yeah. firemen and policemen and, you know, nurse, doctor, mm-hmm. veterinarian, those kinds of things. Who knew that you could be a wildlife biologist? That's Who knew you could a, be yeah. a fisheries biologist or a forester? I mean, you know, it's just not common yeah. vernacular in a family, you know. What would you like to be when you grow up? I bet you'd like to be an ecologist. You know? <laughs> we didn't talk about that. No. <laughs> but I knew I wanted to study animals, yeah. and so one thing leads to another, and I, right out of high school, went and started studying natural resources and wildlife and those kinds of things. But I never, I, I, I loved bats. They were really a cool critter. And in my mammalogy class that I took, you know, you learn about echolocation and how bats, you know, use sound mm-hmm. uh, and echolocate to find their prey and navigate their environment. It's fascinating stuff, but I never really thought much about being bat, doing bat work. Yeah. I, I was like a lot of people. I studied big game animals. I worked on bighorn sheep for my masters, and and did a lot of work on on um, on large critters, like a lot of biologists do. But we call them the charismatic megafauna, and you know most people ignore the not so charismatic microfauna. That's uh-huh. <laughs> another thing. So, but when I took my first professional job. Um, out of college, out of, out of, I finished my master's in 1990. I started working for the Forest Service, and we did a little bit of everything. We worked on songbirds, forest carnivores like you know uh, martin and and uh, and uh, other other kinds of uh, forest carnivores. We did songbird work, amphibian work. We did all kinds of stuff, and then I became a refuge biologist. And same thing, you're kind of a jack of all trades. You study a little bit of everything. But then I got a job as a research biologist at Warehouser Timber Company, okay. and it was very shortly after the Northern Spotted Owl had been listed, and the company 
hired some biologists and they said, we don't want to deal with that again. Let's figure out, let's do some science and figure out how we can integrate wildlife conservation and management into timber production in a a managed forest. And so my entire job was centered on studying not listed species like songbirds, bats, and other critters. So we could figure out forest management planning to integrate those species into into a conservation plan and try to avoid a listing under the Endangered Species Act with good conservation practices. So that was my whole that's a fairly (laughs) short version of a long career. That's how I got into bats was nobody was studying them. Nobody in the timber industry anyway, nobody was really thinking about them. They're very forest dependent. Several species are. And so I did a bunch of habitat relationship kind of work uh, with Weyerhaeuser on bats, trying to understand their use of managed forest. And that ultimately culminated into my doctor program. And then I got, then I got hired uh, by a, conservation group called Bat Conservation International, and they they put me to work as uh, leading leading a research program on wind energy and bats, because gotcha. wind, wind, wind turbines were killing bats in pretty large numbers, and, but nobody knew much about it, so we did a lot of pioneering work on, on bat and wind energy kills, so, so that's I one way to what, get to what, that. What did you, <laughs> no, what did you guys find, like, what were some of the findings there? Like, how did... How was it affecting it? Obviously, we know a lot of them died, but like, what was that process like? So, at first, we tried to start figuring out just basic patterns and relationships. It's like, okay, are there certain conditions in the evening and the nighttime that are that are conducive to the kill, or you know, promoting more kills? Is there a relationship with weather? Is there a relationship with wind speed? Is there, you know, some kind of distance factor from water? Yeah. It, nobody knew much of anything about it at that time. So we put together a study plan that did a bunch of monitoring in the east. We were looking at uh, wind farms in West Virginia and Pennsylvania, actually, okay. which is where it was first documented by kills. And so we started putting these patterns together by doing daily searches under these turbines and then correlating with the prior evening's weather data. And what we found is that more kills happened on low wind nights, which makes a lot of sense. If you're standing out fly fishing or, or, or doing whatever you do in the evening and you're getting bit by mosquitoes, the wind isn't probably very strong. And when that wind picks up, it redistributes the insects. Right. Well, the bats redistribute too to find food. So it made some level of sense that on windy nights, the prey isn't as available. At least that was our hypothesis. So, okay. so that's kind of how we started putting the pieces together. Yeah. Then we started thinking, okay, what's, is there an attraction factor? Are they actually attracted to the turbines? And if you look at them right in the evening and dust, they kind of look like big dead trees. And there's a lot of species that like to roost in big dead trees. So we thought that might be a factor. So we've tested all kinds of hypotheses, not just the work I've done, but uh, a number of colleagues uh, that, that, that address this issue as well have looked at a bunch of different things. And regardless of the causal factor, bottom line, lots of bats get killed by turbines. And, right. <laughs> and, uh, and so we did come up with uh, what I deemed to be a mitigation solution. There were, during those low wind nights, if you feather the blades, uh, wind turbines are pretty simple structure. It's very complicated, but the physics of the matter is, isn't that complicated. Right. The wind blows, they spin, they, they pitch the blades parallel or uh, perpendicular to the wind, they catch the wind, it turns and generates 
electricity. If you pitch the blades parallel to the wind, then they move very, very slowly. They don't kill bats because the blades aren't moving really fast. And it can be a win-win in certain wind conditions where your, your, your wind speeds are pretty low on those, you know, the nights when the bats are being killed the most, you can pitch those turbine blades out, um, curtailment, they call it curtailing the operations and reduce the fatalities. Our, our studies demonstrated between 50 and about 90, 90% reduction in fatalities. So, (laughs) so there are some solutions out there. And then the other thing we worked on was, uh, an acoustic deterrent device, Okay, you know, the deer whistles. You know the deer whistles people put on their cars. Yeah, <laughs> you know to kind to of keep more in the yeah. deer to keep more. I don't yeah. think they work. You don't think the they concept work? was. I don't. I don't have them on my truck, so I don't have any data <laughs> on that. But I, I, I suspect there's pretty mixed results on it. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, uh, the idea there was to jam the bats and flood the airspace with um, an acoustic uh, sound profile okay. of ultrasound. And the equivalent that I could, the best way I can explain it is if there was a 747 jet about 15 yards away from me and you and I are trying to have this conversation. It's not going to happen. And it, it's not going to happen. It yeah. just, it, it's almost painful. Yeah. So a bat has to receive return echoes. It sends out an echo and it receives those return echoes off structure like trees and buildings and that kind of thing, but also bugs. And if they can't get the return echo back, that's a dangerous situation if you're a bat. So the idea was to flood the airspace around turbines with this white noise and deter them away from the turbines. And it's met with mixed results. Um, There's been some success, but we still don't have operational deployment of a deterrent device yet nationwide. Now, there's a couple wind farms that have done it, but that, that are, are deploying on all turbines. They're kind of phasing into it. But yeah. now um, is that, is that something like we could hear? I don't, I couldn't imagine it's something we could hear. No. Okay. It's, I, out, it's out of our, yeah. Okay. Um, it's out of our, uh, our hearing spectrum. Yep. Okay. I, I was just trying to put, so, put those. So anyway, we look at a couple different- yeah. I, well, I was interested in that, man. I, uh, <laughs> like I said, I was terrible at, I, I, as a kid, I was terrible in biology, like absolutely terrible. Um, Loved animals, <laughs> loved them to death and, and did everything, but I just could not put the science together. And so now, you know, in adulthood, I'm kind of just like, all right, well, dang, like, you know, if I had to maybe put my mind to it a little bit more and found a different point of interest, you know, like right. instead of looking at a book, maybe, I don't know, go like the the whole bat thing is fascinating to me. Like, teach me about that in class, you know, and let that segue to any, something else. So. I say all of that to say I've got this like very a uh, uh, like newly rejuvenated interest in like academic stuff in adulthood, um, and I and I yeah. actually really want to pursue my uh, my doctorate. And I look at someone like you, dude. You've done a lot of academic work, and yet and still have managed a ton in the 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 hunting you know industry and and, and community also. In addition to doing, you know, work with TRCP and you were the the chief scientist. So, like, that's a lot to manage, man. (laughs) 
I got a lot going on, that's for sure. But I, you know, my initial intrigue started, and maybe this is what spawned your intrigue okay. and interest later in adult life is hunting. Yeah. My granddad took me hunting, and I th- this is how we kind of got communicating because you wrote that beautiful story about the 410, <laughs> granddaddy's 410. My grandpa bought be a 410 and that's all I shot but he started taking me hunting when I was maybe five or six Mm -hmm. and I started hunting Mm -hmm. with him when I was 10 but that was the intrigue was being in the woods so you don't necessarily have to dive into the books I wasn't necessarily the greatest student on the planet but I was intrigued and and interested inquisitive and persistent (laughs) and I knew this was a job that I wanted to do a career that I wanted to follow even though at that time I didn't even know it was a career so I just knew a couple of dudes on television could run around and tackle Cape Buffalo Uh and wrestle (laughs) alligators and all that I thought that's fun and I can go hunting too (laughs) well look and I and I and I like I was a Steve Irwin kid you know like I I was a crocodile hunter kid like you would have thought Tupac died again when Steve Irwin got stabbed by the stingray. Like for me that, 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 you know, I felt that (laughs) like I felt that real deep and a little bit of irony there, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, And you know what? The funny thing about that, man, everybody, I, I I think I could actually admit, and and it's uh, looking at the way life throws curveballs at what is never going to happen like this. But I admit that I thought that one of them gators was going to get him. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I thought so, man. And, I, I'm with you. And, and a couple of shows I watched, I thought that too. <laughs> yeah, like it, it was, I was like, all right, if he doesn't get taken in by a gator, he's going to get bit by something venomous, like a black mamba or something like that. And, and he's out because he would pick snakes up and I, you know, and I, I know you deal with a lot of nature, but I'm sorry. He was picking snakes up real recklessly. Like, you know, um, well, all those show hosts, after you go through and become a professional biologist and go through the training and you're yeah. taught how to handle animals and that kind of thing, there's serious protocols, you know, through university research anyway, on how you handle critters and, they don't. They, they're not necessarily good mentors on no. the shows. That's for sure. <laughs> well, okay, and and, and and it's funny because you you also host the show too. We'll get there. So let's just keep that in mind. But to what we were saying earlier, yes, my point of entry was like a lot of people's point of entry now, like media. You know, like television or or. But you know, I never thought of of. Um, of looking into and, and, and studying, you know, whatever my outdoor interests are. Like I actually am working on writing a book on African-American bird dog uh, trainers throughout uh, 19th, 20th century, like really real early and actually putting that documentary documentation together. And what's happening is it leads me down these other rabbit holes that kind of turn up and, and, and you've got these historical pieces there so now I'm collecting a whole bunch of dates and all this stuff on people. And then there, there is some biology there, like some, just because you kind of look back through like slavery and stuff like that. And people had to live outside. So you would have had to learn about living. It's like this whole long thing. Yeah. And like that to me is way more interesting <laughs> than sitting in class and like looking at a book because right. it's, it's now, you know, pretty relative, you know, or I'm sorry, relevant. You know, yep. um, 
And well, so, you got the intrigue. That's you got the intrigue part down. Well, so, I hope so, you gotta, man. You got to follow those. You got to follow those leads. I, I hope so, man. <laughs> well, that's what any good scientist does. You yeah. know, most science, almost all science, uh, scientific questions lead to more questions. Yeah, this <laughs> is so, the way it is. So, how often? How often do do does the research that you, that you're doing now? How often does that change? Like. I would like to know an example because I'm sure you get it all the time where there's you thought you had a breakthrough and then no. Yeah. And to be clear, I'm not doing field science anymore. Mine is more political science. So I haven't I haven't put a radio collar chased an animal in a long time. So my science now comes down to living vicariously through other scientists and reading their literature. And, uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to ultimately get to sage grouse. I know you want to yeah, talk about them. I want to get there. Yeah. I haven't, the only sage grouse I've ever handled in my life uh, is one that the dogs retrieved to me. Um, but I know a lot about what's going on in the sage grouse world because I read the literature. So my intrigue takes me into the scientific literature. It takes me to phone calls with colleagues, just learning from them so I can articulate to you and everybody else that I talk to on sage grouse and try to link the science with the policy. So I'm, I'm not as much a practicing scientist now as I, as I was, I'm a liaison of science, I say. Okay. So the, I try to liaise that science into the policy arena, okay. but to kind of answer your, answer your question, when I was a practicing scientist, you know, I mean, our studies were ongoing all the time and mm-hmm. you know, what we learned from what study oftentimes built a new one, you know, okay. just to kind of continue the flow of, uh, of intrigue on why are bats attracted to turbines? Why are they being killed? So you test multiple, uh, you know, uh, hypotheses about that. So it, it changes, you know, depending, and sometimes it changes depending on the funding too. So a lot of times researchers are chasing the dollars. Well, are always chasing dollars, right. but a lot of times that's driven by where the money is. And to be honest with you, I never saw myself necessarily getting into non-game okay. like Songbird work. I mean, half of my publications are, are on Songbirds. <laughs> I never saw that coming. I, I never saw it coming, but that's where the money was. And that's where the intrigue was at the time yeah. because forestry had a big impact on Songbirds and there was not a lot known, especially in managed forests in the Northwest where, where I was doing my work. So I followed I followed the need of the company that I was working with at the time, along with the dollars. And, you know, the policy aspect of that was there were species that potentially were going to be listed. So it was kind of a a triangulation of the needs of the company, which were driven by the policy. And then that generated funding. Okay. So, but that's not how it always happens, but quite often that's how it happens. Now, is is that the way that it happened for your sage grouse work like how like all right so let's let's segue from from that to like how did you get into you know working on sage grouse and i kind of want to talk about that condition too because that's actually a totally foreign concept for me we don't have it out here right you know you do have bob you have bob white so and i do have bob white (laughs) <laughs> I sent you those links. Yeah, and Bob Whites are in trouble. They're not in. Uh-huh. They're not in great shape. 
everywhere. And, you know, they've been declining and across their range. And Mm -hmm. it's not that dissimilar from what recently happened to the prairie chicken being listed again and what is happening to the sage grouse. And, you know, you pick your favorite baseline. Line, but anybody can go back to pre-European settlement and say there were a ton of sage grouse. There were millions. Of course there were. Right. Um, but, you know, starting in about the 50s, uh, and I'm going to tell a little bit of a story here on why this is important and why TRCP and myself uh, in particular got into sage grouse, mm-hmm. but the birds were in trouble and the biologists with, that were working for the state wildlife agencies recognized this. They formed a technical committee through the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, started monitoring. Okay. And long story short, the long-term trend numbers of birds and what we typically have to do with birds, um, songbirds and game birds alike is track what the males are doing because they're very vocal during the spring and the mating season. So you count singing males for songbirds as an index of of what's going on with the population. It's similar with sage grouse. You go out and watch them dance on their lecking grounds. They have a very elaborate dance. All prairie grouse have a very elaborate dance and they're very they have a high fidelity. They're very traditional and they go to these spots year after year after year. So you can generally find them okay. and you can get these long-term trends and numbers. But long story short, the numbers have been declining pretty steadily since mm-hmm. the since the 50s for sure. But the formal counts have been going on since 1965. Um, and we're losing on average about 3% of the sage-grouse males that dancing at Lex as an index to the population uh, annually every year is what the new science is telling us. Um, and there's lots of fluctuations. Game birds fluctuate, as you well know, um, with Bob Whites and any other game bird, they fluctuate dramatically up to 40, 50% or more sometimes in any given year based on precipitation and habitat mm-hmm. conditions. But that was the primary factor was the sage grouse range has been reduced by almost 50%. Okay. And the remaining, the remaining habitat some of it is in pretty bad condition. It's been infested with cheatgrass, uh, which is an invasive annual grass. Uh, you know, grazing isn't always the biggest factor affecting sage grouse, but livestock grazing for hundreds of years, you know, mm-hmm. we're talking back at the turn of the century until present day have altered some of the sagebrush systems. Um, they've changed the vegetation composition. So you've got some degraded conditions okay. across the range. So all, all of these things uh, coupled with some disease factors and, what, and now, encroaching. That, I think oh, that's the piece that I'm curious. What what about disease? Like, what do you mean there? What kind of disease? West Nile, West Nile virus popped up, uh, particularly associated with oil and gas fields and okay. coal bed methane drilling and those ponds that were, uh, that are the settling ponds that are established around oil and gas uh, fields and brought in mosquitoes, which brought in West Nile virus, gotcha. which had took, which had a, an impact on certain populations of sage grouse. But when you, tie all of that together, the numbers have been plummeting. So you, we went from having a very abundant, widely distributed, very liberally harvested, at least up until about the 90s, um, game bird in the sage grouse. I remember in grad school in Wyoming, you could shoot three a day with nine in possession for two or three month season. And Montana had a three month season for up until just a few years ago. Okay. Um, so uh, my point here is that a very abundant, liberally harvested game bird 
was proposed for listing under the Endangered Species Act. That should be a concern to everybody, <laughs> not just one. Yeah. But, you know, how did we get there? Yeah. Um, and, we can, and what I kind of laid out was the habitat loss coupled with disease and, and degradation, just lots of factors led us to a situation where mm-hmm. it had to be considered, it was petitioned for listing under the Endangered Species Act. So when I joined the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, I'll start using the acronym now, which uh, <laughs> twice. <laughs> I think everybody got when it I, by now. Uh, I think everybody got it. I worked for the government, I worked for the government once, and I tell you, it cracks me up now because I hear them, they drop the acronym all the time like ah, government acronies you know but, what man i i was <laughs> i was fearful it, uh, when i first got into upland stuff and you know there's that learning curve of conservation and all kinds of stuff like that that you you i mean there's terms and everybody that is way older and does way more important jobs than you you know i'm i'm just an art teacher <laughs> so everybody's coming in and they're like you know uh, the BLM and CRP and I was like, whoa, 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 what? <laughs> and it and it it took a second, man. Um, yeah, and I was already like I said, I'm I'm I, I do better visually than I do with names and all kinds of stuff. So, oh my god, man. <laughs> well, you're an artist. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what. Uh, we- okay, just a quick little break, guys. Just let's talk about you know. I guess the arts, you know, something, I guess, in the subject of ours, you know, uh, Ed was talking about I'm an artist anyway, and I, and I want to respect the arts and, and bring them in. But anyway, let's talk about reading and literature. We're all big into that. Well, I want you guys to go and check out my buddy, Ryan Bussey, and check out his book, Gunfight. It's coming out in October, and it's coming out on audiobook, too. Um, but Ryan Bussey, guys, he, he wrote a wonderful book that I was in, that I was so privileged to co-sign um, called Guns, Gunfight. So uh, check that out in all major book re- retailers, uh, you know, nearest you in October. And, uh, you know, I know the gun debate gets kind of funky. I'm asking you guys to approach it with a different mindset. Um it, it does, it is a, a bit of a social criticism and a social kind of, I guess a social commentary on, on, on American gun culture. So anyway, I would love to see what you guys thought, um, but check him out, um, ryanbusseyauthor.com. Um, you can find him on Instagram, Ryan, B-U-S-S-E, um, and, and reach out to him and let him know I, I, I uh, sent you and, and let him know your thoughts. Let me know your thoughts. Um, I enjoy the book. I thought it was a wonderful uh, perspective for many different reasons. But anyway, check out Ryan's uh, book, Gunfight, coming out soon. Um, and I think it's available for, for pre-order. But anyway, check them out, and uh, I hope you enjoy. I also want to encourage you to go to thegundognotebook.com and check out our merch. Um, we got a, a lot of different offerings, um, you know, to get you ready for the hunting season. Support us. Rock us out in the woods, whether you're in the Piney Woods or in the North Woods or out West, um, where I'm trying to be. I have been promising Ryan Bussey that I'm coming out to Montana Chief. I'm coming, man. I'm, I'm, I'm getting out there. But anyway, while I'm getting out there, I'm going to have the Gundog Notebook um, apparel. So go to the Gundog Notebook store or the gundognotebook.com and click on store. And, uh, you know, get yourself a, a uh, Gundog Notebook Imperial Red hat. 
they sold out. The first batch of 25 sold out literally in a heartbeat. And everybody that purchased one, thank you so much. Um, and everybody that hadn't had one, we are getting close toward the end of the next batch. So, um, you know, log on and get you one, man. This is a special um, a special hat for me. I, I, I'm a big hat person. If y'all haven't um, figured out, I'm a big time hat person because of my granddaddy. And uh, I want to do things special. That's kind of why I'm pushing this one so hard, if I'm being totally honest. Um, I believe in doing in, in doing a few things and doing a few things really well. Um, and, and that really well is advocating and pushing and 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 hopefully y'all will vibe with the style of this gun dog notebook imperial red hat. Um, you know, it's in, it's made by the company Imperial. I figured that, you know, if it was good enough for the PGA tour, <laughs> it should be good for us, right? Um, and then the inspiration also comes from Southern uh, plantation culture, uh, plantation field trial culture in the, uh, you know, down here in the Red Hills. And there's a lot of different things. But anyway, check us out. Go get a hat. And I'd love to send you one. All right, guys. Back to the episode. It's crazy. Man, but, yeah. So when I... When I joined the TRCP, I mean, I was working on our energy program and public lands programs, and sage grouse occupy a tremendous amount of public lands, but they're kind of a, a the canary in the coal mine, if you will. I, you know, and some some have referred to them as indicator species. Uh, so if you do good things for sage grouse, or if bad things are happening to sage grouse, it's a bit of a litmus test. Uh, for other species, for the whole ecosystem. Because sage-grouse are what we call obligates of a habitat. Mm -hmm. There are associates, and then there are obligates. Uh, and there are other terms, but we don't want to make this too, too many more complicated than <laughs> it needs to be. But an obligate is an animal that has to have that habitat. So okay. if you don't have sagebrush, you simply do not have sage-grouse. It's right. just that simple. Right. And other prairie grouse are a little different. Sharp-tailed grouse and, and greater prairie chickens, and to the extent lesser prairie chickens have, have diversified some of their habitat use where they use different kinds of conditions. Short grass prairie, mid grass, tall grass. Uh, is, is that something that just kind of happens over years? Like, yeah. Is that like an evolutionary thing? Like if, if it's not there, they just, it's, they just, just naturally yep. just go to something else? Sage grouse evolved in that system, and you know they're the only game bird that doesn't have a gizzard. They're the only one, and it's partly because they they it would um, it's the way they digest the sagebrush. Yeah. If they had a gizzard, it would grind up the sagebrush too much, um, and and that would release the terpenes that are inside the sage, and and that would then they're toxic, more toxic, oh. and so they're their evolution and morphological development uh, was without a gizzard. And then they, you know, they just ferment those leaves in a, in a, in a different kind of stomach system than other game birds have. So they evolved in that system and they eat up to hundred percent. Sometimes during the winter, they'll eat hundred percent sage brush. Um, so they're capable of eating it. Um, and other game birds can eat things like pine needles and that yeah. kind of stuff, blue grouse. There's, but, but um, it's how they evolved in that habitat condition and those food resources. Okay. But if you don't have sage brush, you don't have sage grouse. It's just that simple. And 
so we were concerned about sage grouse and a listing because a listing would be devastating to the west um far more de- a lot of people were making analogies to the spotted owl and it would have been far more devastating we're talking 11 states and multiple um uh, industries and uh, it would have been just devastating so we got involved because the bureau of land management the other blm acronym yeah, yeah. there are a few <laughs> out there um yeah. bureau of land management the u.s forest service um, and the states were all developing these conservation plans. Plus, there was a big effort on the private side to put um, uh, farm bill conservation dollars into private lands to do good conservation work. So there was an initiative that was developed in 2010. This all happened. Um, it was petitioned originally in 2005, and this is far long, too long a story. I tell it on a number of podcasts. <laughs> but you good. Let it roll. It, but the reality is, uh, you know, it was petitioned for listing. Uh, uh, it was taken up by the service in 2005, uh, determined not warranted at mm-hmm. that particular time. There were some lawsuits that followed, which you can either be warrant, you can either be not warranted, which means you get no protection from the ESA uh, Endangered Species Act. You, you can uh, be warranted. Um, or warranted but precluded. Yeah. Now, the caveat there, warranted but precluded means you're warranted for protections under the Endangered Species Act, but there's a laundry list of other species ahead mm-hmm. of you, and there's just not, you're lower on the priority. Not, I was going to say, uh, you're not as big a priority. Exactly. Yeah. So what happened in 2005, or after 2005, there were some lawsuits, and fast forward to 2010, a judge ruled that no, um, the species is warranted. Um, uh, it was right before 2010. Let's see. Yeah. In 2010, it was, it was warranted, but precluded. It was determined. They revisited the decision because of some lawsuits. Um, in 2010, it became warranted, but precluded more lawsuits flew. And then the judge said, no, you need to make a decision in the next five years. So everybody talks about September 2015 deadline. Uh, that that was a hard deadline set by the courts. Um, but it's uh, I, I argue with a lot of people on uh, not a lot of people, but certain people on on this this court ordered decision. We've known for a long, long time that sage grouse were in trouble. Something right. needed to be done. Right. So it was a good catalyst to get people to do something. Nothing like an endangered species lifting hanging over your head right. to get people to move and, and act. And so all the western states. Uh, the land management agencies all started doing conservation planning and we were right in the middle of that with right. the policy. That's why I got involved with it. And so my research really was, was learning everything I could possibly learn about sage grouse, learning everything I could about, you know, planning and land use planning and how the government operates and, right. and integrate conservation and science into the, those planning. And uh, I have to break. There are two, Pretty nice mule deer buck walking right down my driveway. There you go. There's <laughs> <laughs> some live there, guys. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, look, that is beautiful. I uh, it's so it is so wild to me. Your world on that on that side of the world, I guess, is just so much different from down here. Like, you know, we have bucks and stuff just kind of walking your yard, but never would I think a mule deer just just come strolling right. on through. You know. 
Um, nine bull elk. I had nine bulls walking through this spring, too, and I had one right in my backyard. <laughs> um, it's really funny. I, my wife was out of town, and I'd been working all day, and, and I went to my bar area and made a drink, and I turned around, and this bull looks looking at me right yeah. in the eye, right in the face, and I jumped, I jumped, I spilled my drink, he jumped back, and then he went back to eating my in my flower bed. Oh, okay, uh, so, so, <laughs> so he didn't even come, he came for a drink, that's what it was. Exactly. He came. He, he came, came for a drink. Yeah. That, that <laughs> sorry, is sorry, back there. No, that's that's but, great, man. So, like how? Uh, I guess what are the <laughs> the the interactions? I guess they just run off like anything else. You know, when 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 humans are around, I guess they just move on. Or are these are these are uh, you know deer that are right on that urban interface with yeah. you know the wildlife. We're we're built. We you know built up this town as as the entire front range is right in the middle of the winter range for deer and elk. So yeah. uh, a lot of bear problems here in Colorado. A lot really? of bear interaction. Now, what what kind of bear? Yeah. Black bears. Okay. Yeah. Now uh, grizzly. I was going to say that you're too far down for grizzlies, aren't you? Um. For now, <laughs> they may make. Last sighting was in the San Juans, I believe, in Colorado in the 70s. In fact, I remember reading about that in Outdoor Life. Okay. Um, story about that. I don't remember the details of the story, but I remember reading it I'm gonna see as if a I kid. That one. Um, yeah, I think it was in the mid-70s was the last known grizzly sighting. And I I can't remember the date, uh, New Mexico. The last one was shot on the Pecos River, I believe, in the 50s or 60s. Uh, was killed there, but you know they could stroll down from from uh, Wyoming, and they may. And some say they've had sightings up in like the Zirka Wilderness in northern Colorado. I it, I don't know that that's been confirmed. Not like our wolves have been confirmed. We definitely have wolves in the state, um, but you know we're the the urban wildlife interface is is a complex thing, and it's it's you know it's where social science and human dimensions kind of interfaces with wildlife science right. and we're still kind of figuring out how to live together to some extent. And people are really starting to figure that out with the wildland fire interface. Um, you know, we had one last year that came within a couple of miles. We're very safe from fire. Right? There's uh-huh. just too many things in us and the, the fuel to actually be threatened by wildfire. But, but we definitely get the animals coming through and uh, they've acclimated to kind of back to your original question. Yeah. <laughs> they, they really acclimated. I mean, if we were out, if we walked out there and started banging pots, they'd probably run away. But right. you know, and the dog dogs will start barking. But they generally have uh, have acclimated pretty well to to humans. Okay. So, okay. I, I was, um, was going to say, unlike human disturbance, they don't like that at all. Right. So, so you um. When you're studying them, I mean, what what does that process look like? Of course, you get data and research, but obviously, I think you would have to go hunt them to some degree. I mean, and maybe not even hunting for the sake of hunting, but maybe finding location and stuff like that. Like, how how important is that piece to you? Well, the research, for me personally, just going out and hunting and looking or going out and observing lex in the spring, you know, that gets me in the field, understanding the animal better, yeah. watching their patterns, understanding how they use habitat, those kinds of things. Yeah. For a scientist, they go out and catch them and put radio collars on them. That's how they, 
they do their science okay. uh, is through radio telemetry. Gotcha. Uh, and you can get data from hunters. This is really important because I, I can tell you, and we can get into this a little more later, but there, there are a lot of hunting closures being proposed now and have been and are happening because the numbers are just really tanking and the habitat conditions are, are pretty pretty poor. Um, but hunters provide some of the only information to the biologists on how to understand sex age ratios, juvenile to adult ratios, and those are basic statistics that help biologists understand what the population's doing, right. whether you have you know good reproduction, bad reproduction, proportion of males to females, those kinds of things, which are very important. Mm-hmm. Um, population dynamic kind of metrics that right. the, the state wildlife agencies use mm-hmm. to set the game the seasons in the first place. So, so hunters are contributing, mm-hmm. assuming that they actually leave their wings and uh, they'll put barrels around, um, different entry points where people go hunting. And if you go hunting with me sometime, I'll show you what a barrel, you know, we'll stop and throw our wings in. And when, so I've, I've, I've seen a picture of it, but we down here, um, at one of the the man it's my honey hole for 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 quail down here man and there is we don't have to put wings in 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 anything but we have a report you know and it's pretty specific you know you fill it out um you know how many coveys did you see how many birds did you take how many did you cripple how many you know all of those kinds of numbers um and it's what i do like about it is a lot of people are into it and it seems to me is honestly a lot of recurring folks, you know, I, I, it, it, it's like folks that are hunting in the area and they contribute a lot of that stuff sure. to that particular WMA. And I think that's why that WMA does so well, you know, down here, yeah. um, a local engagement. Yeah, man, it is strikingly different from some of the other places around Georgia that I found quail. I mean, I, I found them, in a lot of from middle Georgia all the way to South Georgia, but this one particular place, because of the obvious, you know, Hunter and DNR engagement, I think that is, that's one of the things that's really paying off for that area. Yeah. You know, so the no, hunters, hunters can be an extraordinarily valuable tool. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, to some extent that depends on the species and the, the budgets of the departments. I mean, it's, they have to manage a, a state wildlife biologist has to manage a little bit of everything for a huge chunk of ground mm-hmm. and they don't have a lot of money to do it. So, uh, I, I think eventually with sage grouse, it's probably going to, most states are going to lean toward doing a tag system and we'll hunt them like turkeys. Yeah. And, and some states do that already. Oregon for as long as I can remember has had a two bird per season limit. That's it. You get a permit, you apply for it, you get a permit and you, you have to uh, send in your wings and that kind of thing. And it's uh, kind of mandatory. And Utah has done that for a while now. And, and uh, we may go that direction. Yeah. What, what that tells me, unfortunately, is that we're not winning the battle on habitat for sage grouse. Right. And I kind of, I made a very brusque statement to a colleague a few months ago and who's asking, why are we still hunting these birds? And after some conversation, I said, well, if we're going to close hunting seasons, we just, as we, we've admitted failure, right. we, we have failed in conserving enough habitat to sustain a long-term viable harvestable population. Mm-hmm. And 
that's that's an unfortunate failure to me. So, and not everybody sees it that way. But to me, if we can have a long-term, sustainable, harvestable population, mm-hmm. that's success. That means there's excess birds that we can we can provide that opportunity okay. for sportsmen and women, and still have you know strong, healthy populations for everybody to enjoy right. and for you know fill their ecological niches. So. In order to do that, so what we're saying is, I mean, we're getting to a point where, again, sage rice are in bad shape. So there's some things that I had, you know, kind of looked up and, and I had come by on the uh, sage grouse initiative website, you know, just kind of mm-hmm. looking up restoration ecology and stuff like that. Um, one of those things was like removal of early successional, you know, conifer. But what are what are, the, you know, some of those things that that you're working on or, or that need to be done to kind of clean it up? Right. Like it's just damaged habitat i think for starters and the way it all started with these conservation plans was um calling a timeout and try to protect the best of the best okay and just keep disturbance out of that now that hasn't fully developed (laughs) or manifested (laughs) okay um there's still developed Still development that happens within you know what we call core priority sage grouse habitat but protection of what's left is kind of first and foremost um, and then managing other chunks of habitat and restoring it and conifer removal is certainly one thing um, you know uh, these different species of conifers uh, juniper and and uh, uh, cedar cedar trees are often called but a lot most of that's uh, uh, juniper western juniper um, you know it, it's endemic to an area. It's, right. it's native. It's not like it's an invasive species. Right. It's just fire control and other factors have allowed those trees. It's what we would call a climax. Um, situ- they'd be a climax scenario in a lot of different uh, habitat states where ultimately the trees come in and that's the last stage unless a fire comes through and knocks it back and then keeps the grass and the, and the shrubs coming back in. And so forestry it's a similar situation kind of where you have saplings and lots of grass and forbs and the understory and as it grows up those start going away and then your ultimate climax is old growth forest um so the juniper bottom line uh, the issue is it's expanded into places it shouldn't necessarily be under a normal fire uh, system normal grazing that would knock it back wild ungulates those kinds of things historically um so removing those trees definitely releases more uh, sunlight, uh, releases more vegetation, um, restores the habitat that way. There's also kind of the hypothesis that these uh, these uh, trees out in the middle of the prairies and the sagebrush systems allow for raptors, uh, hawks, and, and owls and such to to perch and have a more uh, advantageous uh, situation to right. To prey upon sage grouse, so there's there's some of that factored in. But bottom line, it restores the habitat condition quite nicely. Um, and there's plenty of juniper out there. It's there's no there's no threat of juniper going away because of all this clearing. That's for sure. But one huge problem is cheatgrass, okay. and this is an invasive annual grass that came from Asia um, forever ago. And there there are many other species of invasive grasses that are problematic. But what happens is once that cheatgrass takes hold uh, in a system, 
it can wipe out the native vegetation, the bunch grasses, the forbs. That's normally what you would find in a sagebrush situation. And the fire cycle is what changes because once you get a fire started in that cheat grass, it's a real flashy fuel and it burns very quick and fast and hot. It'll burn systems differently than it would have if there was a native bunch grass um, uh, plant and forb component there. Right. So what's happened across the West is millions upon millions upon millions of acres have been infested with cheatgrass, and it's altered that fire cycle such that the the fires are more frequent, they're hotter, and and the sagebrush just never gets a chance to reestablish. So you, you're rendered with a biological desert, right. essentially. So we've got all these millions of acres that are either already infested or have created this vicious cycle. Um, and, you know, the, the fire cycle varies historically, um, but now we're talking fires every every few years as opposed to decades. Well, and that's um, what I'm saying. Now it seems like every it, it seems like every other week I hear of some like crazy wildfire, you know, out that way. Yep. Yep. Our, all of our ecosystems um, are out of whack in some way, shape or form. Right. Um, Smokey the Bear was a cool public relations uh uh, figure, but it wasn't necessarily the right thing for right. <laughs> for the ecology of the system. So yeah. fire suppression really created a lot of bad scenarios. Well, that I, are now I, starting to uh, I think they changed his. Uh, I think didn't they change his verbiage? I think they changed. Uh, it. I hadn't heard that. No, was it was it like I thought I saw something. I, let me see. I'm curious to know if they had changed his, what he was saying. Cause before he was saying, you know, fires are bad. Um, I want, I'm curious to know. If you they can prevent fire. Yeah. But the persona in the ecology world certainly has changed. We, we think fire is good, but now we're in a situation where striking a match in some of these ecosystems <laughs> creates serious social, social issues and, and potential property damage and law to life obviously just look at what happened in Colorado is happening in California and what has happened here right. even in Colorado we had enormous fires last year that uh, destroyed tons of property so we we've, we've created this situation for ourselves but, right. but and we're learning from it but hopefully we can get our forests back in a situation where they're healthier and can sustain a normal fire cycle yeah so yeah but you know not all trees are not all trees operate the same way. I mean, lodgepole pine, for example, very common tree species out here in the mountains, regenerates from large fires. Right. So that's that's uh, that's the cycle for that particular species, and that's why they clear cut it instead of selective harvest, right. um, because it it generates it's that's its disturbance regime, if you will, big massive fires. But those usually only came every few hundred years or so. You know, it's not like they were burning every. All the time, every few years. Well, and, all the time. So and and so stuff was kind of regenerating on its own natural, you know, cycle. I guess instead of it, you know, being all the time, and, and it has the thing. So real quick, and when fires are more frequent, it kind of cleans out the vegetation, the fuel, and the veg so you get small, you get fires on their normal cycle where they're just cleansing and not necessarily completely destroying. They they burn in a mosaic. A, kind of a pattern as opposed to just you know huge huge acres where you yeah. have kind of a monoculture after the fact that's how they're doing prescribed burning down here 
you know, uh-huh. in, 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 right. in a lot of whale management. Right. <laughs> so and they, they burn like one every year, every two years. Yeah, so. but it's not the same, you know, it's, it's not the same, uh, like area, you know, they're, they're different, you know, developmental right. stages. And st- right. right. Um, it's, it's, it's very interesting, um, that we are talking about this. So my buddy, um, that I, I run dogs on, on, I run my dogs on his property cause he's got re- uh, like coveys of wild quail and I, I love it to death. Um, and it really makes my life easy to get access to. Right. So, I actually just went visiting, um, visiting him and I've already started to see some of the stuff that he had just, just burned away like earlier, you know, a few weeks ago, um, you know, versus the stuff that he had burned a couple of years ago and seeing that developmental process was really, 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 really cool. So this is my thing though. Um, I think is it the U S fish and wildlife service is, I think there's like a grant opportunity Cause I think they want to see down here if, and, and let me know if you know about this, but, and I can pull it up, but they want to see if like CRP practices would work down here in the South. Hmm. And yeah. So I, Wit sent it to me. Um, okay. He, he sent it to me and I want to pull up the actual document. It'll, it'll take me a second, but Basically, they they want to like look at private land, private practices, and they're think, trying to enroll people in the CRP yeah, program. Yeah, but so it's, it it's, it's, like... it's much more experimental, though. Sure. Um, let me pull it up, man, because I thought it was really interesting. Just kind of, just kind of what they were looking for CRP funding opportunity. Let me see. There we go. Because it was it was it was really interesting, and so I asked my buddy. Um, about it to see if he was interesting i'll have to send it to you i'll send you the document but yeah please do yeah and i, I would love to know what you think about it because I, I, I think he said he was he was interested in trying it out but um let's see the usda farming service blah 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 blah. yeah so there's a couple of things that they want to do ensuring equitable access to broadening the appeal of crp Longleaf Pine Establishment Management and Benefits. Yeah, I'll send you all of this. And I'd love to know what you think about this program, man. You know, Do um, you think they're targeting quail specifically or? I think, let me see. So one of the pieces is monitoring wildlife and pollinator response to perennial. Oh, okay, pollinator. Yeah. yeah. And then, hold on. Longleaf Pine Establishment Management and Benefits. It says the CRP Longleaf Pine Practice is ensure is intended to encourage landowners to restore this critical habitat unique in the southeastern U.S. While pine straw harvest is becoming an appealing income string on longleaf uh, pine stands, it is not permitted on CRP due to concerns about its impact on soil erosion, site productivity, wildlife habitat. This prohibition may be a factor contributing in the decline of enrollment over the past several years. FSA is seeking pre-proposals for an experiment that would provide a basis for policy updates to longleaf pine practice management and permissive uses, including raking to optimize the practice in terms of the benefit it generates for both the landowner and the public. The impact of these activities on producer income should be estimated. What does that sound hmm. like to you? <laughs> sounds, sounds like a good experimental opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it sounds to me like they're, they're really trying to establish 
that program in that region where it hasn't been well established before. So they're trying to gather some data to to understand how they should update the policies. So no, it sounds like a good thing to me. I I asked my buddy. And I don't know much. I don't know much about the southeast e- ecologically. It, uh, not as much as I do the west and right. the northwest. But I, um, all right. Um, I just I thought it was interesting, man, and I ran it by him. So I'm, you know, I I think he said, like I said, he was interested in, you know, at least trying it. Um, trying. Because yeah. <laughs> if it works, then there you go. <laughs> you gotta you gotta break a few eggs to make the omelet. You yeah, know? Exactly. So. Exactly. <laughs> so look, experiment a little bit. I, um, I, I, I want to, so we, we, we're going off of, uh, the sage grouse and everything like that. But one thing I guess that, and, and you say you're into the political science, like, and, and TRCP, so hanging out with wit, um, you know, when he was in Atlanta, did I tell, did I tell you that he, we kind of had a hung out when he was here? So one thing that I like about what he talks about all the time, as far as TRCP is they're a very, very, very like bipartisan, like he stresses that, you know, and that's a really good thing nowadays considering where we are. Um, Right. But like, what's your, like, why do you think that stance is so imperative, man? Like on, on your end, like, I think there are obvious answers to it, but I don't know, man, It, it it's, I think it's a responsibility that TRCP does, you know, upholds really well. Well, I, I think conservation, as as we all stated at the TRCP and most most that understand politics and policy, conservation is one thing that should never be bipartisan or partisan. Mm-hmm. It should always be something that everybody can rally around. And that started all the way back, you know, with TR and, and um, and those uh, slightly before him and those afterward, the conservation should be a unifying force for the country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we know that we can't get anything done unless we have that bipartisan support. And especially in rural and more conservative areas, you've got to have buy-in. Yeah. Um, so you may have folks that have a stronger environmental left-leaning set of views, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't common ground embedded there uh, from a conservative perspective, too, because I think everybody can get behind clean water, clean air, habitat for wildlife, strong wildlife populations, hunting, fishing, sustainably harvesting animals, those kinds of things. Not everybody hunts and fishes, but again, my argument is that if we have sustainable harvestable population that means we're doing pretty good but there is it seems though on both extreme ends though it seems like there's still pushback like (laughs) because we wouldn't be having this conversation right there is and i I, well somewhat the way you put it it's very simple you know yeah yeah i wouldn't wouldn't it be awesome if that was that simple (laughs) (laughs) no but i mean there's always going to be conflicts between wildlife and people and economics. And um, <laughs> there's a colleague in Wyoming that said, if, <laughs> I've heard him say this a few times, if you tell a rancher to raise, if you give them enough money to raise butterflies, they'll raise butterflies to, to no end. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. you know, so that you've got to incentivize people to do things. Uh, we have private property in this country, private property rights. It's a fundamental underpinning of our, of our country. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
private landowners need to be incentivized. And whether that is through farm bill dollars to do good conservation practices or, or, you know, whatever income streams that they're bringing in through hunting or ecotourism or whatever, um, they're not going to just do it. Uh, they, they, I shouldn't say it quite like this. Most landowners are going to do it because they do want wildlife and fish and obviously clean water and those kinds of things. But their motivation is also to feed their families, send their kids to school, just like everybody else, and produce food and fiber and other things for, for the nation. We still have a demand for that stuff unbeknownst to people in cities that don't get that, apparently. you know. So there's a balancing act there. So there's always going to be pushback on the economic side of things. I mean, industry... Every industry I've ever worked with is always going to push back on the economics of their operations relative to what they can do uh, for wildlife or fish or, 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 you know, that kind of thing. And especially if there's no regulation involved. And I'm not a big regulation guy necessarily, but there's a reason we have regulations. There is a reason that we have dog laws and uh, leash laws in parks and such. Guys like you and me could walk our dogs least less probably mm-hmm. uh, to no and never have a problem. But there's at least right. because ninety percent of the other people right. that are running around with dogs uh, aren't controlling them and they're creating problems, biting people, whatever. Right. So we have to abide by the law too. It's the same with industry. I mean, if right. every if you got some bad actors out there. Then you end up with a Clean Water Act. You end up with, uh, you know, an Endangered Species Act being enacted. So, so there's always going to be the pushback. And there's always on the left side. There's always going to be people that want to protect everything and don't want any any uh, integra- you know uh, disturbance or interface with industry, you know, an industry development or or, or they want to force things on private landowners. So. I, I, along with bipartisanship also comes the radical center looking for the center and some balance right. between these multiple competing, uh, interests on, on the same chunk of land. Right. So, well, y'all handle it very yeah. well. <laughs> y'all, um, I, 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 quite, I think so. I, I, I just, we've seen how broken Congress is. But you look at something re- recently like the Great American Outdoors Act that was passed recently mm-hmm. and under the Trump administration, right. um, passed with uh, um, very strong bipartisan support. And by and large, once we get to a place where we've got a, a vehicle for a piece of policy to move, um, whether it's a standalone bill or attached to something else, um, usually conservation efforts can generate that that bipartisan support where you're protecting wilderness areas or providing conservation dollars for, for landowners, that kind of stuff. It, it usually, uh, people, uh, find that bar middle ground and that bipartisan, uh, support for those kinds of things. And that's what we keep fighting for because otherwise things get blocked right. by one party or the other mm-hmm. or somehow, up, up, how, uh, disrupted. So, so and that doesn't do anybody any good. No, it doesn't. <laughs> um, We've seen that with multiple other kinds of policies. So we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. But right. we've seen how 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 politics can play into affecting policies and legislation that hurt people instead right. of helping. So instead of everything. Well, I'm glad that you know Land Water Conservation Act. The way that it came through, um, 
Honestly, I think a lot of people were surprised with the amount of support that it got. But I mean, it was resounding, man. Um, you know, but, you know, to 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 kind of bounce off of of that, because I can I could sit and we can talk, you know, conservation all day because <laughs> there I, I think. For me, and that's another piece of of, of what it is that I want to do when I do come out there because I know I was talking about you know working on a project and I've got a lot of ideas for out west because I, I guess I have this um it's just very foreign to me you know and so yeah. a lot of that I want to see um as far as sage grouse habitat and things like that just to kind of know what I'm looking at you know um and I and I think there's a way you know, that because with my nonprofit, I do we do so much talking about conservation, but I just feel like it's so so geared towards down here. Sure. You know, you know I, what you know. I know what I'm looking at. <laughs> yeah, you know what you know. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so I well, and you can of... only. I was going to say, you can only get so much from watching Animal Planet and right. Discovery Channel and those kinds of things. They right. do a fantastic job of demonstrating mm-hmm. uh, what we have out here. But what will blow you away, my friend, is the vastness. Right. It, I, I will take you to places that you can just stand and look and see forever. And it's nothing but habitat. <laughs> birds. Mm-hmm. And just listen to the wind blow and the birds sing. And the vastness of it and the quiet sometimes, it's just, it's it's amazing. Well, I need to get and that. you definitely do. Yeah. But it, uh, that's one thing I can tell you, knowing Georgia a little bit, having visited there, just that vastness uh, and the openness. Um, and your dogs are going to run free. Okay, so we'll take another break, another breather. I know, you know, I got to think about long episodes, man. But anyway, um, I got I got to think about long episodes of a whole lot of dogs. And, and and that means long cable gangs. You see how that work? There you go. Um, I got the Big Bertha cable gang. And Brennan knew to send me that. It's the six dog all age steak. Got the uh, the spot in the middle. For me to stake another uh, stakeout. I never thought that I would actually need that many stakeouts. I need three stakeouts. Two on the end that can handle kind of rough Georgia terrain. Like they, you know, the regular uh, stakeouts that I had. The orange ones that were coming up. The dogs pull them up. Um, particular end. So I got these ones that can, you know, handle the soil a little bit better. So those are staying in. And then I got the uh, classic Lion Country Supply uh, stakeout. You know, right there in the middle, that orange one rotates. It's a wonderful, wonderful tool. Um, and this time I can actually use the big boy instead of the little one because um, I got two of those. Jan Shaw gave me an extra one um, as I went to go uh, record with him and Mike Hester. And that episode is coming. I got I, I got six hours of podcast time to, remember, uh, to, to edit through. But anyway, Cable Gangs, Mr. Brennan Landry. And thank you for teaching your son all the, the 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 wonderful lessons of being an entrepreneur. But anyway, guys, go to Cable Gangs, man, and go and go go check out their stuff. Um, there will be a promo code soon for Cable Gangs, but those are the homies, man. And uh, 
Brennan has entrusted me and my dogs to tear up his stuff literally to make it better for y'all i've 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 been on the front end of cable gangs um testing and and and, and product trialing and stuff like that and i absolutely love it so check them out um cable gangs with a z cable underscore gangs on instagram check them out let them know i sent you also before we get back into the episode i just want to Encourage you guys to go and 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 take a shot in the dark, man. Take this good old this big hunt um, that I and myself and and Chuck Duggan, the owner um, of Hollywood Farms and, and Quail Plantation, we are offering a luxury two day wild quail hunt. Check us out on the gundognotebook.com. Check out all the details. We got everything there, but we are giving you guys what Georgia has to offer in its fullest particularly middle georgia wild birds so come and check us out book with us it's only three hunts for the year though it's a special place all right guys the gundognotebook.com go to the store and you can put your deposit down on the hollywood's uh the uh hollywood farms hunt and come out there and hang out with me and chuck's dogs man we got two days of a good time for you And my last thing before we get into the episode, the Georgia River Network is a job posting for you. The Georgia River Network, which I am so delightfully on the board of, um, is looking for a new community programs coordinator. It's a new job posting. Um, and the job that you'll need to do, you have to check out the Paddle Georgia River Adventures, the Water Trails, the Georgia River Guide app support the Georgia communication staff support and reco- re- recreate responsibly campaigns and initiatives bridge the outdoor adventure gap support Georgia River Network grant writing and assist with other Georgia River Network programs projects and events as needed um, and of course you'll have to recruit and manage interns and assist with program work anyway we want to get you guys hired so go and check out the Georgia River Network. If you need more details, give me a holler at thegundognotebook at gmail.com. I, am, I have got this thing with buying all-age dogs now because I want to run. Um, I'm hoping one of these little dogs that I got make, make something of an all-age dog, field trial dog. I, I'm really yeah. going to give it a home run effort. Cool. And, um, you know, you've got not in the, the field trial world. And I don't know, do you, I don't think you were doing retriever trials, but I know, uh, you know, you did I a lot one, of retriever hunt tests. Uh, hunt tests were my thing. I ran one trial one time with a friend of mine's dog because he was in Canada, abandoned ducks. And I said, yeah, I'll run him for you. And we got a, we got a reserve jam in a, in a field trial in a derby. So, oh, wow. <laughs> uh, but no, I got into the hunt test thing. I mean, when I bought a dog, uh, <laughs> The little little story behind it. It's a long story, and I've written about it. So okay. I'll send it to on why I decided to buy a dog. The day I decided to buy a dog, I've, I've kind of told it as a story. I haven't done it at a BHA event, but I, I told it at a at a Wyoming uh, game bird event. I uh, I literally went out and swam after some ducks one day, and I'd been I'd been hunting with a friend of mine. And he uh, he had a Chesapeake, yeah, 
and I really like that dog. It, um, it, it was just a very nice dog. It was a, a deep, dark chocolate. Uh, and I'd never seen a dog work like that. I'd never seen anything like that. And he yeah. trained his dog through the Richard Walters who uh-huh. dog and, uh, you know, so, so look, my my first point of entry was the Chesapeake too. So we're we're alike in that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but I didn't buy a Chesapeake. But I really like that dog, and I'm like, all right, I want to get a dog. I think I'm going to get a lab, mm-hmm. but I think I'm going to get a brown lab because I like that dog so much. Yeah. Um, I, I did a yellow lab. <laughs> yep. The, the day I decided to get it was when I swam out and got my own ducks one day because I shot, I made this beautiful hunt on these ducks. I shot them out in the lake, and then I was so proud of myself. And I was like, well, hell, now what am I going to do? <laughs> so. And normally, I'm, I'm going to tell the punchline to the story here, but normally I used to carry a fishing pole with yeah. me. And a great big-ass treble hook. Yeah. And I weighted dribble. I'd throw that damn thing out and hook the ducks and bring them in. Well, I forgot my pole. I went back, <laughs> went back to the truck and I went, oh shit, I don't have my pole. So, so I swam. That is <laughs> and hilarious. I'm, like, oh, I'm getting a dog. And it's a true story. <laughs> and I literally found a breeder about two weeks later and within a month, I, a couple months, I had a dog. You had so. a dog. That is funny. Well, I, I, I second... <laughs> started or getting into it because of a Chesapeake. So my mentor, Eric Morris, he, uh, you know, he's somebody, a good friend, family friend, so on and so forth. And he got me into, he taught me how to hunt, so on and so forth. Well, you know, he took me out to Kansas and his Chesapeake razor was a really nice dog to this day. Still a very nice dog. Um, he swears he, he, and I'm dog trash about him now, but he swears that he can, find more find and, and retrieve more birds than my pointers can on any given day with his chessy so you know i'm gonna just let I that hang there say, i used to say that with my first lab because <laughs> she was she was independent and stubborn you'd think i had a chesapeake yeah. in that lab but I'll you what that little bitch could find birds yeah. she absolutely could find birds but i got into the hunt test thing because of her because i just i wanted a well-trained dog and i yeah. started reading you know, everything I could, but I didn't train with an electric collar with her. And I learned my lesson on that. We and, uh, are the same. That is the third thing we're the same on. Okay. Yep. <laughs> okay. I learned my lesson. And they always tell you after you train your second dog, you'll go back and beg the forgiveness of your first one. Exactly. So I, exactly. But it's, anyway, it's so, it's so funny you say that. So I never got another retriever after my first lab, like, and, and, I use them way more for Upland. We don't really duck hunt. But anywho, like, even with my pointers, because I got th- three of them working on a fourth, and I got a setter puppy coming soon, I look at every, even some of the basic things that I was doing with my lab, I still, I think he looks at me like, screw you, dude. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, and, yeah, what I learned is that if I'm going to correct the dog at 200 yards, you know, train him blinds, right. it's not efficient to uh-huh. not have uh, have him collar conditioned. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, no. So I learned my lessons on that dog. But I got into the hunt test program because of her. And then when I bought my next dog, um, I, I got a good one. I got what some call the lifer. Really? I got my, I got my, I got my once in a lifetime dog. His was name that was Merganter. Was that calculated or do you just, it just no. happened? I, uh, I, a, a woman 
that I knew that was a breeder, um, and I'll give her a shout out, Diane Morley with Merganza Retrievers in Oregon, good friend. She uh, knew I wanted a male. I was mm-hmm. looking for a male lab. My, my first dog was getting a little older, slowing down. And she, she actually had a major injury when she was probably two or three. And she had an bulge. We didn't even know it because she was so muscular and strong. But, but later we did some uh, an MRI that showed she actually had an abulsion. So she actually tore bone from bone. Whoa. So the tendon, the tendon where it attached to the bone, it actually removed some of the bone as the tendon tore. So that was in her left rear leg. And it just never got better. And she just kept getting worse. She fought through it and mm-hmm. it, it healed itself as well as something like that can heal itself. We never did a surgery. And when we finally figured it out later in life, you know, the surgery was going to be way expensive and I didn't have that kind of money at that time. And so we just put her on Rimadil forever and then she hunted until she was about nine. And then we just stopped hunting her. I gave her, my mom kind of took her under her wing, but anyway, so I was looking for a new dog and, and Diane, um, got me in as, uh, pick mail on this litter. And she said, I think you're really going to like this dog. He's run two field trials and he got a second and a fourth in the two trials. Wow. And he's a chocolate dog, mind you. Yeah. Well that, well, that dog's name is Storm's Riptide Star. I don't know if that name rings a bell to you, but Tell me he is the only, I, okay. he, he's the only chocolate ever to win the national open. You're kidding. And Mike Lardy ran him. I can't remember the year. It must have been 96 when he won it. Okay. Because because Rip was born on New Year's Day, 1996. And I put the deposit down in like October. And he had won these. He had gotten a second and a fourth in these yeah. trials. Okay. By the, t- by the time he was a couple of months old, he had got his FC, qualified for the National Open. And in like November, whenever the National Open is, let's see, the National Amateurs in the spring, I believe. And so it must be the fall that they have the Open. So it must have been October, November. She called and said, the value of your dog just went through the roof. Daddy just won the National Open. <laughs> I got my retrieval trial news and uh, sure enough. So anyway, uh, Rip was wild. a really nice dog. Okay, so, so now, was, how did you get in contact with, how did you get to know Mike Lardy? Well, it's interesting. I didn't know Mike. I just knew who he was. Okay. Um, a pretty, pretty famous trainer. And yeah. um, But interestingly enough, I knew a person that was on his master's committee. He's a biologist. And the very first time I watched a Mike Lardy video, I'm like, this dude is either an engineer or a scientist. <laughs> One of the two. Okay, so, so he okay, is, so you, he you, is attentive about writing notes and all this stuff. I'm like, this guy's an engineer or scientist. I know it for a fact. Did a little research on him, uh-huh. and he's a biologist. He got his master's degree at the University of Idaho, and he and I knew a, 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 I, I knew a person that was on his committee through the ungulate world. I was working on big game animals, Jim, guy named Jim Peak, and it was funny it's when I met Mike. World. It was. And I, when I met him, there was my end, you know, and I yeah. met him and, hey, Mike, how you doing? You know, I said, you and I have something in common and you won't even guess what it is. I guarantee it. <laughs> you know, you know this guy that I named his name? He goes, well, I do. He was on my committee. I said, I know that. <laughs> so we got talking talk wildlife stuff, but 
Let me catch you one more time because that actually sure. goes into one of my other questions that I, I had about you, man. So, like, how much, you know, because you, you've been a judge even, you know, for the Master National Retriever Hunt Test. You, you've done all of that, but which means you know how to train a dog. I mean, you do. Um, how much of your scientific background, like Mike Lardy, how much of that do you count for your knowledge of, of, of learning and working dogs and developing them? That's a great question. Um, I'm hard. I, I, it, I struggle sometimes with coming up with those types of percentages, but I'm going to give it every bit of a third of maybe 40% because yeah. of just my, my observate. Well, I read, Yeah. I mean, I read and follow. I, I, I don't think I know everything by any stretch of the imagination. And I'm probably a better judge than I am a trainer, but the, uh, the scientific background in wildlife has helped me understand the behavior and what I'm seeing, you know, and I, and I'm not, a, I'm not anything like a pro trainer who watches all these different dogs, yeah. but I know my dog really well. Right. And, you know, just studying animals, you, you learn to see patterns. You, you just learn things about the behavioral, you know, the behavioral patterning of, of critters that is helpful. There's right. no question it's helpful. Right. So I'd probably give it a third at least, but you know, the rest of it's just practice in the field and reading, reading and trying, trying things. Yeah. Go ahead. But I, I mixed up my training techniques with, you know, between some of Lardy's philosophies and approaches with, uh, I like Jim Dobbs a lot. I thought, mm-hmm. uh, the Tritronics training retrievers or retriever training, I, mm-hmm. I always get the title. I thought that was a spectacular book. Really, uh, it's a really nice, nice book. Um, and in fact, when I was breeding labs, I, I usually steered people to that book more so than Lardy's stuff because this was more, more advanced and for the field trialers. It's not that you couldn't make a good hunting dog out of it, but for just somebody looking to train to get into hunt tests or just have a good hunting dog, I just felt that Dobbs book was just easier to follow and start to finish from puppy to, 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 you know, a a finished dog. So, but anyway, that I haven't trained a dog like I used to. Rip was an easy one too, but I haven't trained a dog in a long while. So I, uh, but I still judge, so. Okay, now when, when was the last time you judged a test? I judged in May. Oh, uh, okay. I'm the, pre- I'm the president of the Fort Collins Retriever Club, and I judged our hunt test this past fall. Okay. But I haven't run a dog in a long time, and, you know, that creates a little conflict with the participants. They mm-hmm. want to know that, the, you know, I used to run every damn weekend. Hell, right. I, I ran all the time well now are um, you are you involved in navda too because i think navda has that rule where you have to like uh you have to run a dog yeah. to be a judge you have to run a dog every so often and field trials do too they yeah. you have to run run the stake that you're judging or have, have passed a dog or somehow qualified them in one way shape or form for the stake that you're judging i could judge field trials i, I have no issue with that yeah. field trialers I'd argue that, but I know how to set up a test, <laughs> and I can, and all I and all I need to do is put a few hundred yards on some of the marks, and I can run a field trial. But yeah. I've never judged a field. I've judged one field trial back in the eighties. Was it the eighties? No, it must have been the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, you know, I guess I don't even think they called me an apprentice judge. I didn't have all the rules. I just yeah. judged with the guy that judged forever, yeah. and we judged all together, and it was great. Yeah. But 
I'd have to I'd have to start running field trials to judge them. But I think NAVDA has the same rules. And I, it's a good rule. It's just my professional life ate my lunch. After when I had RIP, I was do, working on my PhD. Well, I was I, I was working a job that it was more conducive to take him with me in the field and train him. And I was really into it. Um and didn't have quite as many things going on as I seem to now, but my professional life has really precluded me from, and that's a choice, you know, it's like working out or anything else. So I get my dogs to where I know they're going to be good for me in the field. And that's about as far as I've been taking them lately because I hunt. I told Steve Steve Renella asked me this one time, how many days do you hunt here? And I thought, I I know. Yeah. And I counted them up. And the next time I saw him, I said 78. Yeah. Well, <laughs> wow, it, it, it's, quite a bit. it's a good question. So Cause like, I mean, you're, you're in, in some way, form or fashion, you have, I think you would have to be, or you have a lot of opportunity to be anyway. Um, right. And so, yeah, that's actually a really good question. Like how many days do you hunt? Um, I'd never tallied him until he asked me that question. <laughs> never. And that particular year, I I hunted a bunch. I yeah. saw him like I don't know, following February. And I said seventy-eight. He goes, what? Now how? Now, now like, doing that. Were, how much? How much of that was upland though? Uh, chunk. Good chunk a of good it. Good chunk of it. Okay. Uh, I, I'd say three quarters of it was upland and okay. waterfowl. Okay. Um, I I got my teeth big game hunting for sure but well, look i mean we all cut our teeth hunting small game most yeah. of us anyway yeah i do know one person that that embarked in the hunting world by killing a cape buffalo as her first so harvest t- okay like, so that's how, not, does, how that's does that work because that i mean you're spoiled okay doing that how does that work for them yeah. well it, it ain't the same as you and i brother bro growing up with yeah. a Four shotgun unwatered <laughs> and chasing small game. It's not the same. It is not the same, so, man. And but and you I know guess, what, man? I will. I will always. I have a special place in my heart for for uh, squirrel hunting. Oh, I do too. I, I miss it. I, it's I nothing it. like it. And I, there's a piece of me that <laughs> wants a little a little squirrel dog, man. Yep. Yeah. I've never hunted them with dogs, but it's fun to watch. I've watched it. Uh, on TV a few times and some shows that I've never seen it in action. Yeah. I, anyway. so I've, I've never hunted squirrels with a dog. I want to. Now, I am the guy that, and and I'm not even sure, man, if I'm going to get another lab after this one. Um, and he's wonderful. He's he's my Craigslist dog, $425 later, and, you know, the Wild Rose Way book. <laughs> we got yeah. ourselves a hunting dog, right? Like, um. And I love him to death. That is the dog that got me broke in. But that when I tell you, we talk about versatile dogs and I'm going to get into your poodle pointer um, because I'm curious as to even that transition. But for me, my lab, dude, if it if it moves, it gets picked up fur or feather, you know. Um, Now, I am a firm believer in using a lab for all of that stuff. Yeah. You know, I've loved mine. I've had. Kind of lost count now, seven or eight, mm-hmm. and um, unfortunately, probably about to lose one. I'm a little concerned about her tonight. Actually, mm-hmm. she's thirteen and a half, uh, so sad. she's up there. But uh, you know how it goes, man. Yeah. <laughs> they look too life they is too short They never live long enough. enough. Yep. They they never live long enough. Yep. Yep. But you know, I, 
when I when I had Rip, that's when I really that was my lifer dog. I call him. I, I mean, that's when I was really running tests a lot. But I hunted him a lot too. Yeah. I hunted him a ton. Um, but he was the kind of dog too that you know. And this isn't bragging. This is just reality. This dog, you know, he was a natural at so many things, but he was so biddable mm-hmm. that when I put when I put a correction on him, it stuck. Yeah. Like for a long time, yeah. he never tested me. He was he was bold and aggressive, but never pushy and testy. Yeah. You know, and he never pushed the limits. And so, if I was doing like a shore breaking drill, and I'd create a little hot spot where he get out a little early. Yeah. He'd swim one foot off the shore the next 25 times. I, I would never, and I, and I like I said, I'm not bragging. It's just, That's he just, just what it did is. it. Well, there's some, there's some animals that just get it. Yeah. He just got it. And he's also the kind of dog that, and I did this and this was just plain stupid, <laughs> but I would, I would train. I'd get really busy in my job and I wouldn't train him for months sometimes. I didn't hear him in a hunt test, crack him out of the box, and he probably had a 95% chance of passing. <laughs> I mean, he, he passed like 48. I only ran 52 master tests with him, but he passed 48 of them. Man, you, and, dude, uh, you're good, still running an A average uh, on that dog. <laughs> you know, and and he got two plates at the Master National. I scratched him in his last one, his retirement run, because he screwed up his back, and then we failed oh. one. But but, uh, but he qualified for seven na- seven or eight nationals. Wow. We went to four, got two plates, but I mean, he just, he was just a great test dog, yeah. but he was also an outstanding hunting dog. The next two labs that I had after him, um, were my best hunting dogs. Really? Uh, the, the one right after him, his son, Sage, I never ran him in on test. Yeah. And then, uh, and then, uh, Sage's, um, half sister, was my other good good hunting dog. She's fantastic. Let me ask you um, this. Do you do you <laughs> when you because you hunt so much and you did, you know, so much hunt testing just over the years, and I'm always curious about this. You've got guys that are like only hunters, right? Or you've got guys that are only, you know, hunt testers. Trailers. And trialers. Yeah. Like, do you see when when you have situations like that, and this is me being sciencey again, do you see like a dilution of genetics, you know, because of stuff like that. Like you get guys that are only breeding for certain traits, like a dog that is, is going to be a really good hunt test dog, but then they don't really hunt the dog a lot. So like, is, is there a fall off there? I, I haven't observed. I mean, obviously breeders breed for certain traits. I mean, that's what the poodle pointer that we're going to get to eventually became the best of the pointing and the best of the retrieving world. That's what they were looking for. Um, I mean, there's some of that, but I, I mean, I think if you're breeding to the solid field trial and hunt test lines, whether they're hunted or not, doesn't really matter because those traits are trans, they transition to the field so easily. And, and, you know, I mean, in a normal hunting situation, you're not going to be doing a, a 250 yard blind right. or even a hundred yard blind. Sometimes, uh, your marks may not be over 25 yards. Theoretically, unless you're crippling birds, right. you're dropping a double in the in the decoys. Right. So it's just an extension of their natural ability to mark. And then the trained abilities in, in a blind, uh, come in real handy when you don't want to walk across the pond to go get the bird. You, just, you know, it's good to have those blind handling skills, mm-hmm. 
but that's not that's not what's most important hunting in the right. field. Right. You know, their nose, their marking are the two most important things, and steadiness. You know, I kind of gave up a little bit on some of the steadiness, and that I shouldn't even admit this, but <laughs> uh, all of my all of mine were always steady to shot. Yeah. My labs were always steady to shot, uh, but I just started losing pheasants. Yeah. You know, uh, just pheasants are so freaking tough. Well, I, and, I don't uh, want to hunt you know, with pointers. It's like, you know, get on the bird. Yeah. <laughs> get on the bird. Yeah. You know, get it. I so. I don't, I have zero interest in hunting pheasants with my pointer. I, I just, I do. Really? Yeah. Um, mostly because I don't know enough about them. Like again, I've stepped on a pheasant out in Kansas, but I was running a lab, like I, you know, and he didn't no. know what he was looking for. But what I'm fearful of is me putting my dogs in field trials, and there's like two schools of thought on this. But there's the the dog that like knows how to handle pheasants, right, and can go, can point it far enough, and eventually pin the bird, and no. then there's the other there there's the other school of thought that's like don't ever put them on there because you're going to introduce the creep into your dog you see what i'm saying because they're, they're runners because they're yeah. runners and if your dog is creeping in yeah. a trial well but again i'm gonna play devil's advocate against that too well down here quail are not runners i mean they're runners but not to the degree that a pheasant not like would be. Pheasant. Right, right. You know, so it's kind of like like I I was talking to um my buddy um Tommy Rice. He's a pro trialer down here, and he's like, shoot, I like a dog that know how to handle it all. Like, run them on pheasants, let them let them figure it out, and they need to know the difference between the game that they're working with. You and know, they'll figure it out. The smart ones certainly will. Yeah, I think I I think so. I'm just I'm I'm really nervous about doing that, man. You know what I'm saying? And it's not think- that you can't break it out. You know, reef you know, fix them. Right. Right. You know, and I'm back to the NAVDA question. I, I know very little of NAVDA and I know very little about pointing and versal dogs and can't wait to pick your brain a little deeper on that. And I've, I've been calling, calling friends, but you know, I, um, I don't have a good answer for that (laughs) other than, uh, other than I can tell you that pheasants most assuredly run. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've actually shot, quite a number with rip the dog uh-huh. I was talking about here. Um, he, he and I would oftentimes be hunting behind a friend of mine who had a Llewellyn at the time, mm-hmm. but he's had short hair. He had a little bit of everything. Yeah. And he's a dog guy. And I've killed a, quite a number of, of, uh, what I call the backdoor roosters <laughs> where we're coming up from behind or we're flanking uh-huh. him. His dog's on point, but there's nothing there. Then he creeps a little further, nothing there, and all of a sudden, Rip's putting up a pheasant right yeah. behind me, <laughs> and they just they just backdoored him. Yeah, you know, it, it's, he was on scent and on the bird, but he just wasn't there. But he kills a ton of birds too. Yeah. But I I I don't have a great answer for that, but I understand the concern. So you well, should come this- out and cut. Your- on prairie grounds, that, so they don't run as much. That's what. Well, that is what I want to do. Um, I heard prairie grouse are really good for for bird dogs, but this is my good. my this is my solution for pheasants. This is what we gonna do because I'm I'm also an opportunist. I'm not gonna tell my dog not to do it either. So like, right. Wait, <laughs> you, you, you know, you can't, like, yeah, you can't. You don't know what the hell's gonna get up exactly. in Montana sometimes. 
Exactly. <laughs> so this this is going to be my solution. I'm going to do it. I'm going to try. And I may go out looking like a fool. I don't know how well this will work. I don't know anything about that. But, you know, I run my my lab at heel with my, my pointers, yeah. you know, out front. Just run them like that, keep the pointers broke, and let the lab do the flushing. Yep. You know. Um, I've, I've, I've thought about that combo myself because I still have a very viable hunting lab. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to right now I'm just trying to figure out what to do with the young pup, but um and he hasn't even seen a wild bird yet, so yeah. we'll we'll see how this <laughs> plays out. But I'm I'm probably not gonna hunt them together too much no. uh, early on. I wanna wait till he gets experienced and yeah, so there'll be a lot of a lot of dueling uh dog mm-hmm. trade out. <laughs> mm-hmm. I had to do that, man. I mean I the only reason that I put mine together was out of necessity. Um yeah. it's when I, you know, during the season, it's still pretty hot down here. Um, you know, even in November and what was happening was, um, you can shoot quail, but sometimes you wound them just like you wound anything else. And when they hit the ground, they get to running and they run in a hole. Well, yeah. I don't stick my my hands in holes down here because of um, rattlesnake. Yeah, that's not a smart thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, and I don't, I don't go digging around and getting on my hands and knees in thorn bushes for the same reason. Um, you know, rattlesnakes and stuff like that. But I figured, so I was working, I was, I was training Vegas, my, my oldest pointer. And I was like, he got to the point where I needed to kill a bird over him, like a wild bird, like just for him to, to seal the deal on the training. And I was like, all right, well, I don't, I also don't want to lose it. But I also don't want him to retrieve it either. But I need to shoot it and get the bird back in my possession. Well, right. I need to use my lab now. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, ah, because I, I you know, I didn't, I didn't want to let him go retrieve it. So it worked right. out. Um, and there was some bullying going on from my lab to my my my, my pointer, but they eventually figured it out. Um, but it took a second. Yeah. It it took a second. Yeah. Um, but no, man, like, look, you got the best of the best, though, as far as pointing and retrieving. So you got this new poodle pointer. Um, tell us where you got it from and, and what inspired that, man? I actually really like poodle pointers. Well, I didn't know anything about the breed at all, quite honestly. A couple of friends have them and I started getting interested. Uh, this is going to sound really stupid, um, but what intrigued me a lot about them, besides their history, the color. Okay. I can keep my brown dog theme. I've never had a non-brown dog. I've had all brown labs. Look, I'm every tra- one of them. I'm trying my to stick to program, orange and that, white pointers. I'm trying so, to do the same thing. There you thing. go. <laughs> so I now have a versatile hunting dog. That's a he's slick coat. He doesn't even have a beard. He doesn't have anything really? yet. He is a slick. He looks like a bobtailed lab. I'm telling really? you. Really? So you really get want, to the theme. I'd show him to you right now, but he's laying asleep and quiet. So I think I'm going to keep it that way. Yeah. He's got some juice, but I, I just like the looks of them. I like yeah. the coloration and I liked everything that I heard and talked. My buddy, Ronnie Bame yeah. loves them too. Yeah. Um, and I, I asked him what he thought. He said, I love poodle pointers. I think yeah. they're great. Everyone I've judged, I've really enjoyed watching. So I did my homework and just the color theme kind of sealed the deal. But, um, I found this guy. This is an interesting story. I was hunting last year up in um, uh, Nebraska. Okay. And I 
hunting sharp tails on some walk-in areas and not too far from the house. It was kind of a day trip. And, and I was just sitting there at the end of the hunt. I'd gotten into some birds. They were a little spooky. We hadn't killed anything that day. And I was getting ready to run this next field. And I'm kind of sitting there looking at it. And this guy pulls up from Wyoming. And I hadn't made a commitment or a decision to go yet, but I was starting to think this through. It's like, God, with COVID, yeah. I'm not traveling. Yeah. I've got two old dogs. I need to get a What a perfect time to get a puppy. Well, then I start calling around breeders and stuff. It's like, hell, it's a two-year wait yeah. for a damn little pointer. I mean, they're damn popular breeders. There's just not that many of them. <laughs> yep. And so I'm going through all this contemplation in my head on that, but I'm sitting there at the moment watching this field thinking, okay, how am I going to attack this field and high grade it? Cause it was getting kind of hot. And you know, with labs, they're not, they're not pointers and versatile. They don't run big. You high grade habitat. Yeah. When I've had people ask me, how do you hunt this? And I, I, I look for where I, I just, and that's where biology and science come in to help me mm-hmm. is not just training, but knowing where I think I'm going to find birds. Right. And that sound, really simple but it, there is an art to it there's an art uh, I not all do it grass, down not here grass, not all grass and topography are created equal yep. so i had to figure out how to hunt quail with a lab down here doing the exact same thing just burn them out mm-hmm. otherwise and I, I, my most lethal combination was when i had four between the ages of one and five yeah and we were lethal and i was 30 something. So I could run all day too. Yeah. And the reality, uh, we were lethal on birds with that. I'd hunt two at a time Yeah. and I had four dogs. So, I mean, I'd hunt dark at sunrise to sunset That's until I limited it, out or man. we burned it. But anyway, uh, I digress. Okay. Well, we're at a tail end of the podcast guys. And I just want to kind of, you know, encourage you to do more, more within the, the the Project Upland Northwoods Collective family, and that is go subscribe if you're not already subscribed to the Pro, uh, Project Upland magazine. I don't know why I, I can't get my words right. And uh, Hunting Dog Confidential. Now, a personal favorite of mine is Hunting Dog Confidential. I'm going to tell you why. I'm big on history, and I'm big on the... All the stuff that I would have thought was boring in high school, but made way clearer and made way more interesting by Craig Koshik, my good buddy, and my other good buddy, Jennifer Wapinski. Both of them are hosts. And the Project Upland podcast, when they say these are your stories, I mean, the podcast is that way, the magazine that way, the company, I mean, I'm, Y'all know this. I'm Project Upland fam. And I'm going to ask you guys to go and subscribe to the newsletter, um, the email blasts, um, the magazine itself. Both of them. And if it's a thing that you need, you know, uh, uh, if, if, if if it's something that you need me to help you get subscribed with, just DM me at the Gundog Notebook on Instagram. Let me get you a subscription. All right. The other thing that I want to keep y'all hip on is Outdoor Life Magazine, my other family. Now, first of all, Alex Robinson is an incredible editor, and I appreciate um, 
working for them and, 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 you know, submitting ideas and stuff like that. Outdoor Life magazine has really challenged me to push the bar as far as my writing and, and start to really branch out if I'm not being totally honest. Um, but right now, before we branch out, we're going to go to Choir in the Pines. It's an article that I just wrote. It's coming out digitally on OutdoorLife.com. And go check it out. Let me know what you think. Y'all know me, man. When I get to writing, I get to catching the spirit and, and, and relating all things, you know, godly to quail hunting. And I hope y'all enjoy it. I got all these crazy bird dogs, and, and they white. I, I like to think that they might be my angels. But anyway, stay tuned. And I'll let you know. If, if it doesn't come out between now and the next episode, I'll let you know when Choir in the Pines is out. But go check it out, all right? I hope you all enjoyed it. I want to take y'all back to the episode of the Gundog Notebook Podcast. And let's go ahead and round it up with Mr. Ed Arnett. I hope. I told y'all, man, he got so much going on. I, I can't. <laughs> I, I, I can't. I couldn't stop at an hour. Let me just put it that way. I couldn't stop at an hour. Um, and I hope you guys are learning a ton. I'm definitely going to get out there with Ed. And, uh, you know. Y'all will have more stories, and, and and we will definitely see him on the podcast again with way more knowledge. But when I tell you this man is passionate about sage grouse, I'm so honored to have someone as, as informed as he is. So back to the episode with Ed Arnett on the Gundog Notebook podcast. dark and pulls up from wyoming nice guy popped out i said i won't i don't want to bug you you know i just saw your plates and wanted to chat with you a little bit and, and uh or saw your dog crates just wanted to see what kind of dogs you had anyway he just wanted to bullshit that's what he what he did right. and he, he's got a poodle and i i said well, i got a lab and i'm thinking about getting poodle pointer uh, so after the dog talk started and uh he said, well, I got one in the back of the truck. And so I go and look at this nine month old, just stud. This is yeah. the best looking damn thing I've ever seen. Yeah. He just, I mean, I was a female dog. I'd want to, I'd want to jump on that dog. He was, <laughs> he was just gorgeous. He was muscular and tall, uh-huh. lean, big, bigger than I thought a poodle pointer would be. And just beautiful. Yeah. And so we got talking about where he got him. And, uh, I wrote the guy. We exchanged emails. I wrote him about two weeks later, and I said, "Hey, where's that kennel that um, that you got that dog from?" And the guy's name. So got the name, and I didn't make the connection. Yeah. But I went to the guy's website and I started looking. And it's like, well, the guy runs labs too, or at least he used to. Yeah. So he claims he ran the 2013 Master National. Huh. I judged the 2013 Master National. It turns out when I didn't put the pieces together until I showed up to get the dog, but I wrote the guy a letter and poodle pointer breeders are pretty interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you know, some of them want more contact than others. And then just, you know, they got long waiting lists and it, it, it just, I was learning as I was, you know, calling and, you know, checking out folks. But I wrote this guy a letter and mm-hmm. I, I laid out my 
I laid out my dog credentials. Right. So he got, he got a half a page email just so I knew, so he knew I was a dog guy uh-huh. thinking, thinking somehow that might help. Maybe not necessarily bump up the ladder, but at least he but knew at least I was going to train a foot in the door. Exactly. Guy called me within an hour huh. and we talked for a little while and talked for quite a while actually. And he said, well, I got a bunch of deposits, but they're mostly on females. Um, got like nine female deposits and two males. So if you want one, send me your money and I'll put you on the list and we'll see what happens. Well, the female only had two males and two females. She had a really small litter. Right. One of the guys bailed out. At least he told me that he bailed out. So bottom line, he got me in. So I got a poodle pointer within a few months of thinking about it and getting a month money down so um this grant granite ledge kennels in um in minnesota and um guy's name is chris wilson the minute i saw him the minute i laid eyes on him it's like you were in my flight weren't you (laughs) yep you dropped four of my five dogs too (laughs) 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 and uh he had five in our national flight and uh and we dropped four of them and one of them and he reminded me the story and i just felt awful oh. because one of, them, one of them she was a fan freaking fantastic dog i remember yeah. the dog after he said he told me the story and it's like yep the gunners screwed up and mm-hmm. the gunners awful gunners and they ended up tripling a bird it was a short flyer to begin with it was not intended to be a breaking bird it's a yeah. long story of why we had to do it. If you've never been to a master national, you got to have all the tests set up exactly the same across multiple flights. So because the way the terrain was, we had to have this flyer short, like it was really short. So it really was a breaking bird. Yeah. And these idiots proclaimed to be great shots and they couldn't hit their ass from a barn. Yeah. And they, they screwed this dog. Up. And in fact, I replaced the gunners after this happened. I got so mad at him. I kicked him out and we got new gunners. What? And, at least I told them that they better start hitting. I can't, we didn't really throw them out, but we, I went down there and talked to them about it, but, yeah. and they were placed very shortly afterwards, but they cost this guy a plate. Probably it was the last series. And, um, and they shot this duck and the damn thing landed like six feet away and she couldn't, she couldn't take it. it too much temptation, yeah. And I, I'm, I can't change the rules. Yeah. You know, she broke yeah. and got the, got picked up. Bird, so it was all, and, 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 and then you anyway, we you're buying life. a dog from him. <laughs> buying a dog from him. So, but, uh, and that was just pure random chance. I yeah. mean, that wasn't by design at all. So, and he just, now he doesn't breed labs anymore. He breeds mostly uh, poodle pointers and and pointing dogs. Nice, nice operation there. Um, good dude. And, uh, you know, so it, it all worked out. And I worked, I drove up and picked up the dog and, and the first night I brought him home, I I was I camped at a little campground in South Dakota, and and uh, just kind of walking him around. You know how you can kind of tell mm-hmm. certain traits mm-hmm. dog. If you've been around enough dogs, most people will say, "Ah, you can't tell that." It's like, you no, can see it. You're raising up. You can see things. Yeah. And this dog was. I mean, he just was bold. He's he's literally fifty days old. Yeah, and I've. I've got him in this park in a remote spot where I knew he wasn't around because he wasn't vaccinated. So I knew he wasn't around a lot of dog crap and pee and stuff. Right. Um, and I, he was just bold as hell all right, right out of the gate. And you could just tell it's like, okay. And I could tell he was, 
he may not have been the bull of the litter, yeah. but he's real close. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's the chesty little fellow. Well, my but, my lab was the the bull of the litter, and it's still like that with my dogs now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, some of them are just like that, man. See, but my philosophy is you can take it out of them, but you can't put, put it in them. In them. You yep. can take a little out, but you can't put it in them. Yep. So I Absolutely. love this dog. He's he's a pain in the ass uh, in the house. Those are the best ones, man. Dogs, but yeah, no, he's he's smart. Yeah, he he's taken to what little training I've given him. It's mostly obedience and just getting him into good experiences, socializing him, cover. He's watery as hell. Yeah. Oh God, he loves water. Retrieving machine. I mean, yeah. literally the first I took him on the water. We went. To, I got a lake right across the street from me, a wildlife area. Yeah. Uh, which makes it nice and handy. And uh, first time we went over there, threw bumpers out there, right in, yeah. just swimming away. Now, what are you? What so, are what are what are y'all primarily hunting out there, or what what do you intend on primarily hunting out there with him? So I love sage grouse and sharp tail grouse hunting. Okay, sharp tail grouse in particular. Um, I have a limit on sage grouse because there's so few. Look, there's lots of sage grouse. Don't let me scare everybody listening to this right. that they're going to go and but they're in trouble right so i limit i limit myself to like six sage grouse a year i do the same so. thing with quail um it helps that like i'm just not the type of person i like i shoot a 410 for a reason um right because right it it functions semi as a training gun when i miss and i just like the challenge of the shot well Part of that is 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 because I also don't want to kill a lot of quail down here either. You know, I can yeah. keep coming back and running and hunting on them if, <laughs> if I'm not shooting. So I limit how many wild quail that I hunt. Person, I think I shoot maybe two sure. or three. Um, yeah. and that's what it is. But I need. I want my dog. Man, no, like I, I during the season, I will make it a point to kill two or three. Now, oh, wow. you know, flushing it because I mean, does wild quail taste any different than pen raised quail? Yes, absolutely. But I just, I, I'm, I don't know why I'm so like just really addicted to this one spot that I have, you know, down yeah. here. And I just, I'm like, I want to keep it. Good. I just want to keep it. Um, yeah. You know, now I, and that's here. Now, obviously, if I go somewhere else, you know, <laughs> the yeah. rules don't apply. Well, and sharp tail, you know, if we ever go sage grouse hunting, you know, yeah. I mean, you're limited by possession too. Yeah. In Wyoming, you can shoot two a day and have four in possession. So you either eat some and hunt a third day or you shoot four. Right. I just try to limit myself to a half a dozen, maybe, maybe, you know, a half a dozen in mm-hmm. a couple of states. Yeah. Just depends yeah. on. This depends on the numbers. When they're good, they're good. You, you know, we'll take them. But sharp tails, I, I love, and I'm telling you, sharp tails are really juicy. Oh, they're good. They're like those. They are fun, and prairie chickens too. And and I will I will hunt them hard. Well, but let, pheasants, let's, let's make got a lot of pheasants. Let, look, so. let's, I'm gonna take whatever you throw at me when we get out there. You just you just tell us what we hunting that day, and and we just gonna make it. A little bit of it depends on the time, because you know if if it's you know pheasant season, it's it's what I call uh, TFTD season. Mm-hmm. They fly, they die. You know, and uh, like at the end of October in Nebraska, literally the opening day of pheasant season, everything that is legal to shoot in the state of Nebraska 
is is open, and it, so it's anything that what if it flushes it or yeah. flies, it's coming down. Yeah. So, yeah. but uh, doves doves go out a few days after that. But yeah, I, September is kind of dove and and grouse, and uh, then you get later in the year you can get quail and and pheasants. Okay, so you can get a little bit of everything. So, well, I, but I'd uh, say if you come out. I'm gonna work it around season. my. I'm gonna work it around my teaching schedule. So well, you said sage grouse season. Sure. What now? Well, sage grouse season is typically right around the middle of September, and it it lasts maybe a couple of weeks. Okay. So unless you're in Montana, they've got a, a month long season. Um. um but so. sharp tails open the first in most states. We have a limited sharp tail season here in Colorado. They're mountain mountain sharp tails. Um, and they're funner than hell. I mean, you want to talk about different habitats. Yeah. It, it's, uh, what you said, the very first of what month? September. September. Okay. Cool. Any, um, the best time to be is mid September until mid October. And then I get into big game hunting. All right. And then waterfowl hunts, And then, then I'm upland and waterfowl hunting only. Well, Usually in I, November, uh, December into January. You are on my priorities, like gotta go get out. So I'm actually going, um, I'm actually going out to hang out with wit in September. So what I do, yeah, 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 yeah. So he, um, are you going to the board meeting? Is that what he's got you coming? No, this, uh, in the Adirondacks. Oh, in the Adirondacks. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh-uh, no, this is this is something totally different. That's, um, that's totally different. It's totally different. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> we can't look. Yeah, we can't, yeah, no. can't, can't tell everybody yet because it's a surprise for the. We, we've got a yeah, right. We've got a board, <laughs> we've got a board meeting in September too. But I yeah, yeah and I I can't remember where that is. I thought it was out west here. I anyway. Um, but no, I'm going up to meet and hang out with him. Um, yep. For some minority outdoor alliance stuff in September. So what I will do is, um. I'm going to run it by my wife and get the right dates and everything like that. But mid September to mid October, I mean, that's, that'll work, man. Um, and I think our teaching calendar should be out too. So it's literally just me navigating, you know, what that is. Um, yep. I the, and I'm going to drive out there cause flying all of these dogs I got is a pain, but I'll drive out that way. Yep. And, uh, two day drive. I've, I've made it. Yeah. <laughs> 19 hours. Well, no I did it, so we we did it for. I told you my brother went to Colorado State. Yep, and um, and it's it was a long it's a long drive, dude. <laughs> but it can be done. It is. It's nineteen hours. Well, and I know that because we went and visited my my uh, wife's family who lives in Woodstock, okay. just north of Atlanta. Well, man, so, you come down here, man. You got to call me. Well, that's why I told you I didn't know you then, and I, I certainly wish I would have because I would love to. Have gone. I brought the dogs. Yeah. I went quail hunting. I went with uh, I don't know if you know Dan Forster. He used to be yeah. the, the director of the Department of Wildlife there. Dan took me quail and woodcock hunting, and then I I shot my first woodcock in the state of Georgia. Nice on a on I think it was on Forest Service land. Okay, it was, uh, somewhere east of Atlanta. Was but it, we went uh... and did a. A little put and take quail hunt too, and that was fun. You probably talking about either Joe Kerr's, Cly Bell, or Charlie Elliott WMA, um, because they have they have a, a if you time Turner. it right, you if you time it right, the woodcocker there every so often. It may you may have been somewhere else too, but I know 
that I've heard, you know, a lot of folks say that they're Woodcock there. I've gotten Woodcock um, up in Waynesboro, Georgia, too. You know, um, but they they come. We have a pretty pretty decent Woodcock season here. Yeah, yeah. He went out afterwards and uh, said he hadn't seen he hadn't seen that many Woodcock in forever. I think they shot six that day, dude. I so almost I, I just, the first time that I ever uh, put shot shell, you know, shot into a Woodcock because up in North Carolina. So we were doing the Project Upland public grouse film, right? And we couldn't find a grouse to save our life until Mike Nadusky found one right at the end of the film. But it was just all kinds of funky and everybody was not in the right place. It's grouse. Hunting, That's right? where I first saw you. Yeah. That's where I first saw you was in that film. I, I was the I was the MC for that film showing in Fort Collins really? for Colorado BHA. Yep. That's cool. And uh so I did the intro and the exit on it, and uh, but I'm sitting there watching. It's like, wow, that's a frustrating hunt right there. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. It was so that's my, the first time I, I saw. It. Oh my gosh! And, it, and and everybody, it was fun, and I will never forget it. But like we we were dang near stepping on Woodcock, but the season wasn't in, so we couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> And Mike's dog was pointing Woodcock left and right. And so my dog, he was young, didn't know anything about Woodcock at the time. And so he was running over him. And I couldn't get him to point a Woodcock to save my life. And I was like, dang, okay, maybe he just doesn't like him. Well, a couple of weeks later, I get um, my Die Lane Plantation quota hunt. I, I get drawn for the quota. So, and it's a quail quota. I And, and Woodcock season is in in the same area. So I'm kind of like, well, if it, it both, if, if either one go up, then we're good to go. Why they're coming down. If yeah. it's coming down. Well, and I didn't know how good this place was for Woodcock. I had no clue. So we go and I'm hearing quail going, but we just cannot locate them. By this point in time, I got my pointer. Well, I decided I wasn't going to take my lab out. Um, I just wanted to work my pointer and that was all. I wasn't going to run them together that day. We go, and my dog, I'm hearing quail, but we can't get on him. And we get to this one area, and it's kind of marshy. It's at the time, I didn't, I didn't, it didn't dawn on me, but we were in like perfect woodcock cover. And my dog runs and just boom, just freezes and locks up. I mean, the most staunch, beautiful point ever. And I was like, this doesn't look right. Maybe this is like a, a single, you know, I guess he got separated <laughs> from the cover. Like, this is just yeah. weird. Like, this doesn't look right. So I go in and I flush, 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 and nothing gets up. And I'm like, damn dog, false point. Like, God dang it. And so I tap him on the head to tell him just keep going, like, keep going. No, he goes and relocates and points again. And I was like, dude, stop. Like, maybe I done made the dog sticky. I'm, it's not dawning on me what's going on. There's a woodcock sitting right. in here. Yeah. <laughs> so I finally, and so I tap him again, and he's like, all right, I guess I'm not supposed to point it. He runs off and beep, 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 beep. Woodcock flies, flies off. off. And I was like, really? But then catch this. Not five minutes later, he slams on point again. <laughs> and I'm like, what in the world? And, beep, 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 and I, boom, knock it down. 
And this and 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 in between then it might have been a little more than five minutes. Now I'm thinking about in between then I went to go get my lab because the truck wasn't that yeah, far from right. where we were. I went to go get him. That's what happened in between then. And I come back. Vegas goes on point. Bird gets up. I knock it down. My lab goes to pick that bird up. And so from there, once I see him going, I release Vegas. Vegas goes on point again, like maybe 10 seconds later. Wow. And we're just slamming points at that point. And then Bird gets up. I shoot it. And my dogs were like, what in the world? I think they were as confused as we were. We was like, what in the world? And, <laughs> and mind you, during the public grouse film, that dog would not point Woodcock to save his life. <laughs> That's all you can find. <laughs> yeah. And I, I was I was going to limit uh, out funny. that day. And the last Woodcock that would have filled my limit, because we only had three, the last one that yeah. was going to fill my limit um, got away from me. I just missed the shot. I think I got too excited, yeah. man. <laughs> That's funny. So, Did you get any quail? Did no, you get any quail? No quail at all. Only <laughs> quail oh, was Woodcock. That's funny. So, but man, I I'm gonna um I'm gonna work on those dates. Like I said, I just need to get it organized and, and work around that. But dude, you know I can talk to you all day, and I want to definitely come out west and and kind of clear up my vision of of what y'all got going on out there. Uh, that'd be fun, man. So, so. we're going to do it. Well, look, where where do folks find you, man? And and I know you, you're doing a lot of work for TRCP, but where where can people find you? How do we get in contact with you? Oh, they can write me at, uh, just go to the TRCP staff page. My email's there. You can email me there. It's ernet at trcp.org. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's probably the best place. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I've got a personal email account too. If folks want to hit that, uh, right? Uh, it's EBA Wild One, the number one at Gmail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I teach at CSU, but that's, uh, yeah, they'll probably, yeah, they don't need that many emails. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, I will yeah. say, I would, I would, I, I wish that I would have taken your class <laughs> in college. <laughs> Man, my biology teacher was, I, uh, was crazy, man. So no, I wish I'd have taken yours. I, I'm teaching policy right now, and I'm contemplating some other classes down the road. But uh, yeah, it's been fun. Yeah. You know, it's kind of one of those things where you get to a stage in your career where you want to give something back, and this mm-hmm. is a good way to give something back is through some experience. Hopefully, I'm a good teacher, and the and the instru- and the students uh, learn something. But well, that's what I'm saying. I would I would take I would take your class, dude. <laughs> well, it's good to it's good to take courses from people that actually are practicing what they're teaching. That's yeah. for sure. So, and the TRCP has taught me everything I know about policy. Yeah, that's for sure. And you know, my students are getting real world experience. The, what I teach, and it's all online. Um, so you could take my class actually if you wanted to. Really, uh, it's online. Um, everything that we have a certificate program at CSU for a wildlife uh, certificate. Huh. Uh, but but more importantly, we have a master's program that you can get your master's degree. It's called our online C program, and that's where my class resides. Huh. So uh, it's a natural resources policy class. But, you know, I, I start off with a little history okay. uh, of how, how our, our laws were developed in this country. And largely because, you know, we, we decimated populations and decimated habitat and we needed laws in place mm-hmm. to, to regulate 
you know, hunters and end market hunting. So we talk about the Lacey Act and the end of market hunting. We, we talk about TR a lot and what he did, um, Theodore Roosevelt, um, you know, in establishing so many acres of public land and national wildlife refuges and all the things that he did. But uh, that kind of just moves through these different eras until present day. We talk a lot about Farm Bill and, and, um, the, yeah, and next, next year, uh, well, we got next year, next spring, when I teach the class, I'll, I'll put in new stuff that we're working on right now. So we've talked about the Great American Outdoors Act, and and uh, next spring we'll be talking about this infrastructure bill that we're hearing contemplated and argued and debated yeah. right now. Um, there's some good wildlife stuff in that. So, that so yeah, is I, cool. I, I try right, to keep so I'm on the Colorado State website now, so I'm about to go look it up and, and look at that certificate program, man. Um, that's really cool. And it, it's, I like yeah. it because again, it's that, that is teaching, man, is, is keeping things fresh, you know, keeping it up to date yep. um, and not just teaching the same, it's just the same stuff, man. Right. You got to have the history and the fundamentals, but it's got to be contemporary and fresh with present day, no doubt. So I try to blend it, you oh, know, a little man. bit of both. Okay. <laughs> well, I am, um, I'm, I'm really interested in, in, in coming out there and hanging out with you, man. And, I'd love to, picking love to spend time with, with my many thousands of questions. Oh, I didn't. Well, vice, I, vice versa. Look, <laughs> Before we go, man, I didn't. We, I missed a point. If you don't mind me taking two more seconds of your time. Sure, no problem. You were the host of a TV show, and I just thought that was super dope because you did send me um those you know films and videos. Let's talk about that for a second, man. I totally glossed over that. <laughs> that is one of those little pennies from heaven opportunities that just landed in my lap. And uh, because of the sage grouse work that I was doing, the policy work, um, there was a film that was being, that was funded by, by a a foundation. They wanted to do a sage grouse highlighted film on the show called this American land. And I hadn't really heard of them. And, and, uh, but I agreed to kind of serve as a sportsman's voice for sage grouse in this, particular episode so i was a participant and an interviewee and um, the executive producer and a cameraman came they called me and they said uh, can we interview you and i said yeah absolutely uh, but here's the problem i'm leaving to go i think i was going antelope hunting or something i said i can't come to you probably can you come to fort collins to my you know my house yeah and uh, we went to the wildlife area right across the street and filmed i did my piece I, uh, I actually, the, the line, it's in episode, uh, I think it's in season five. It's called Sage Advice for Sage Grouse yeah. on that show. Yeah. And that was my debut as a participant. But I got that, I got the tagline in there that I told you earlier. I said the fact that uh, once widely distributed, mm-hmm. fairly liberally harvested game bird is now being proposed for listing by the ESA, uh-huh. under the ESA, should be a concern to everyone. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's a great way to catch people's attention. Anyway, I get a call about two weeks later from the producer and we were, I told him, I said, if you need some contacts for private landowners or researchers, let me know. And, uh, he called me, he, I gave him some names and he said, well, let me shift gears on you and ask you a question. How would you like to host the show? <laughs> and without any hesitation, without any thought to it, I just said, you're kidding me, right? With my face for radio? 
He kind of chuckled a little bit, and you know, I, and he was dead serious. I thought he was kidding, and um, so he asked me if I wanted to host, and I'm like, "Well, who the hell am I to turn that down?" Right. So, and I, the logic there was, um, and I have the gift of gab; I can talk. You can tell we've yeah. been going a couple hours, but he um, he was looking for someone that was right on the cutting edge of conservation on the front lines had that contemporary knowledge of what was happening, had connections in the conservation world and such. And, uh, so that long story short, that's, he asked and I accepted and, yeah. uh, yeah, I've been doing it for five seasons now. That's cool. So. Well, I, um, you sent them to me and I started watching, um, the one that you sent me, um, on quail, but I, knew I you'd like, to yeah, I was going to yeah. start with that one. Of course I was going to start with that one. Um, yeah. but I'm going to walk, oh, I'm going to go, actually, Really, I, I, it's interesting as much as I do literary and all of that stuff. I actually read and watch a lot of hunting stuff. So this is fresh new content for me. Um, and it's, and it's conservation and it's about people and yeah. people doing things and yeah. conservation. So it's a little different angle. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really well done. The executive producer, uh, Gary Stryker, was the uh, was with CNN. In fact, everybody that works on this show except me, was a former CNN nice. uh, uh, professional. Gary was in Nairobi. He was the Africa Nairobi uh, field correspondent for, yeah. for 20 years. And, you know, the, the videographers are all Emmy and Peabody Award winners. And they <laughs> and, just decided to I come mean, together to start this show. Gary wanted to produce a kind of a, the idea was kind of a 60-minute style mm-hmm. of conservation news reporting mm-hmm. from the field. It, it's been good. The, the problem is, you know, we're totally nonprofit. We're totally at the mercy of funders and funding, and and we are always, you know, looking for more funding to do more shows. And COVID didn't help. COVID kind of hurt us, so we haven't put our our latest season out, but, um, but it's a great show and it's really well produced. And I, I certainly enjoy it. Mostly what I do is introduce, you know, if you watch a season, if you just kind of go to the seasons, which I noticed today, the link were down. I don't know why. That's why I sent you the individual story, but I introduced, you know, Hey, welcome to this American land and, you know, introduce the segments, but occasionally I go to the field and actually do a a field correspondent. So there's a good one on wild horses that I was field correspondent on and one on uh, saving wetlands and uh, Louisiana coast and saving the Louisiana coast and a few others that just one on land water conservation fund. That was really nice. Did that with play and Tawny and BHA. Yeah. That was a really good one. So those are fun to go out in the woods and kick the tires, and talk with the people myself. So it, it's, it's been fun and uh, I've been honored to have been asked and to participate. It's, it's, it was really just, just landed in my lap, man. Mm-hmm. Out of the blue. Yeah. Never saw that one coming well i think you are the right person for it um i have like i said i haven't finished everything but i like the way from i'm probably about a few minutes into that 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 quail episode and from what i've seen thus far i really like the way it's shot um i like the presentation um so that's my new thing i'm on i'm on now so thank you for that one good Um, it's on uh i was gonna say so i um you said itunes uh, YouTube, okay. we got, it's on YouTube. You can find it there, and uh, it, it airs on public television. Okay, I'm sure it airs in Atlanta. Yeah, 
So. I will. Um, what I'm going to do in these show notes, I'm going to put the links to them. Um, sure. in the show notes, so that way you know folks can. Yeah, you know, I need to stream it right off the website. Yeah. So yeah, dude, it's it's cool. good. I wanted to make sure we got that. You are the busiest person that I know, and I thought I was busy, man. <laughs> I think you're equally busy. Though. <laughs> and all the things you're up to. Well, you know, <laughs> and you got you got a family too, so yeah, um, I got you're a one year old and an eight and an yeah. eight month old. Yeah, so and uh, and multiple dogs coming in. I'm supposed to be. I'm looking at possibly getting another dog Sunday, and then uh, my buddy just told me um, the setter bitch that I want a dog out of just went in the heat. So uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you're just as equally busy i would say just in a different context in in a different context (laughs) man but look i am going to continue to bug you about these dates and things like that and i don't know i gotta have you on again um actually when we get out there we just record an episode then but i'm really excited to get out there with you man And, and and you know with minority outdoor alliance um you know i've started doing some work with trcp and and on some diversity equity and inclusion initiatives there so we are going to be messing messing around getting in the field pretty often my friend uh really looking forward to it so i'm gonna pick your brain on uh training this little uh lab looking uh versatile (laughs) that i have (laughs) anything you need man but look you're you're in the best spot though you got all them wild birds out there well, I can get him into birds. He's yeah. definitely going to get into wild birds this year. I've got one big game hunt that's going to take some time away from me, and yeah. a couple. But uh, beyond that, he's going to get hunted hard. Whoa. He's going to see a lot of so. That's I'm cool. looking forward to picking his brain on some training and see okay. what you think of him. So Let me know. I think he's going to be pretty good. I, I like uh, what I see so far, and I can read a dog reasonably well. So yeah. I think he's going to be pretty good. And be fine. You you look, you know what you got. But yeah, man, anything you need, like send it my way. Uh you know, I'm getting I actually got a young one, so we'll be going through it together again. So, you know. So the last part of the episode we realized that uh Ed and I just could not stop talking bird dogs, uh, and wild birds and various observations um that he and I have had or shared. Uh, between you know the the little bit of time that I've been in this thing and, and and a lot of bit of time that he has so check this out I think this was a pretty interesting segment um to add in um you were saying you were seeing it from the retriever side of things as far as testing dogs versus wild bird dogs yeah no and I think it transfers very nicely from you know the, the field trial stock and the hunt test stock, I think, is a good starting point for any hunter. Right. I mean, you know these dogs have the natural capabilities and they're trainable. So, you know, you can get a good hunting dog from any lines probably if you train it right. But I always roll it. I always uh, place my bets on, on a good field trial and hunt test lineage buying a pup. So I think the traits transfer, but dogs that are – tested exclusively and not hunted much or if they're not hunted much may have some struggles with upland for sure mm-hmm. um i think for duck hunting it's a much easier transfer because they're marking they have to have good blind manners when they're sitting there be gentlemen and ladies in the blind and do their work and 
do a blind retrieve here and there. Um, so that all is transferable pretty easily, I think. Upland hunting is a little different. I mean, you know, wild running rooster pheasants are not uh, a hunt test game. Right. <laughs> and AKC doesn't even test that anymore. They used to uh, do upland uh, testing, but it got too complicated with really? the numbers. I mean, you get 60, 70 dog masters and you just can't run a hub a good upland uh, training test it takes too much time i didn't know so that. They okay. they, yeah they eliminated that quite a while ago um but the um you know the hrc folks do uh upland kind of tests at least i think they still do so but no i i think there's i, I hear what you're saying on the pointing dog i could see that where bird dogs that see just nothing but planted birds mm-hmm. uh, and then you try to take them on a wild hunt it, they, they could probably ex- have some issues. Well, yeah, it and and this is again coming from you know my mentors and things like that. And now and of course, there's always going to be the people just like ah, you know, they're they're gonna uh probably not see eye to eye as far as this conversation. But I really think like I'm 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 doing something a little bit different. Like with my my oldest dog Vegas, and I love him. I you know really nice hunting dogs, pleasant. I've never gotten anything but really nice reviews on the folks that have hunted over him you know he's a he's a good dog but there are things that i noticed that are different um about him and there are a few things and and these are things that i'd be curious to see if your poodle pointer does it so i worked my dog on you know pin race quail and and pigeons early on to get the motor running and things like that he's never turned down pin race quail but he got to a point where he would stop pointing pigeons. Like huh, once, and it, and it was after I had introduced him to wild birds. It was like right after that season, he didn't want anything else to do with pigeons. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, and literally like, I, and I, and I tested it. Cause I was like, dang, did I get a defective pointer already? Like Jesus Christ. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I I was out and I put a, a pigeon in, in one of my launchers or whatever, and he mows right on over it. Like, doesn't touch the launcher, acknowledges is that it's there, continues to go hunt. And I was like, huh, that's weird. So I call him back and I leave the pigeon there. Um, And I, I wait about 30 minutes. And in between that 30 minutes, I go and put a quail in a, a pin raised quail in a tip up trap, just a little metal tip up trap. Yeah. Probably. 50 yards away from that same pigeon so i'm like all right so i left the pigeon in the same place control variable right and i i let the dog run what does he do the exact same thing he runs right over that that launcher because if and if he pointed it i was gonna launch the bird for him so on and so forth runs right over it runs 50 yards down right into the scent and points that pin that that pin raised quail interesting I mean, and points it like, and I was like, that's the weirdest thing. So I was like, all right, well, the dog doesn't like that. But then what I started. Why? That's the, that's the key thing. Yeah. Like why? why? What changed yeah. in a season? Yeah. Okay. So and- now let's go further with a thought. And this might, this might catch you too. So now the same dog, all we do is, you know, predominantly during the season, we're hunting wild birds and things like that. When I'm guiding, guiding is the only time that I'm running on pen raised birds because at the club that I was guiding at, that's just, that's, that's how we did. Well, I put him out and I start to see throughout the season, 
he is significantly less intense on point on those put out birds. And when we go hunt wild, I mean, dude looks like a million bucks. Interesting. So he's differentiating mm-hmm. scent and the uh, and within a species the 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 type of critter. That is interesting. <laughs> it's either a really smart dog or or a very very <laughs> a very particular particular one. Particular one. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want no stinking homing pigeons why would i want to point that when i can have wild quail (laughs) dude it was and i mean that's really interesting yeah it and it was the weirdest thing because i was driving myself nuts about it man like did i do something yeah Mm -hmm. what did i do well you know my first thought would be well if something negative happened with the launcher or the or the pigeon in the Mm lawn you know that's your first line of thought is like what Mm -hmm. happened that just maybe you don't want nothing to do with it yeah, he didn't want anything to do with it. That's interesting. And he, huh. but but the launcher, like I didn't. He wants I'm, wild. He quail. just wants wild quail. I don't know what it is because he, and with the launcher, like I don't, I, I I I didn't do anything to like burn him up or anything like that. I was just launching birds yeah. out of it and stuff like that, and he was just fine. Like, and I and see, I photograph and video damn near everything, and so I've watched him. As a puppy, he would go point launchers, launch bird out of there. That was when I was breaking them. Right. And then as he got progressive, like when I go through these videos, he's gotten progressively older and and just does not like pigeons and huh. doesn't really like pen raised quail. Well, now I'm afraid to have him <laughs> Put him on, put him on a sage grouse and a seven pound bomber sage grouse gets up. He'll never point anything else. Like, wow. Look at that thing. He spoiled him too soon, man. That's funny. I, I, That's uh, a really interesting phenomena though. I, I, I hadn't really, well, I don't know the pointing world enough to know that. I don't think I've ever seen a lab differentiate like that. In fact, it's kind of interesting. Um, we were talking earlier about my research on bats and wind uh, issues. I actually taught one of my dogs to find dead bats underneath wind turbines because what happens really? a lot of the time, the bats get killed and they land in vegetation that's too heavy for people to see them and they crawl under it if they're crippled. And so I got a dog that wants to go out now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this this Um, is, this was a good segue, but I just wanted to, you know, get this on, but go ahead. But anyway, I I taught this dog how to find dead bats. I trained him to do this within like six, seven days. And he was finding like 90% of the bats that we were putting out for trials to test him. And, but one guy asked me, he said, aren't you worried about the bird hunting? I said, oh no. Mm-mm. He knows exactly what this job is, mm-hmm. and he knows exactly what that job is. Mm-hmm. This is the dog that I did nothing but hunt, 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 hunt from the day he was old enough to go hunting until the day he dropped dead and couldn't do it anymore yeah. or, or couldn't do it anymore before he died. And he never saw a hunt test, never wow. trained him for a hunt test and ran him a day in his life. Yeah. And this is the son of the dog I talked about earlier, Rip, but he was the best upland hunting dog i ever had and i'd put him up against any dog in the country on finding birds and yeah but but he differentiated the jobs is what i was going with this that's really funny though on differentiating types of birds within the same species pen versus wild that's mm -hmm. crazy it's it's crazy what these dogs could do i mean 
I mean, even picking up bats, man. I mean, we had that whole conversation earlier. I, I had my dog pick up, you know, my lab pick up rabbits, squirrels, whatever like that. I think particular. Now, this is the thing with labs that I do like pretty much whatever situation that you put them in. Usually they're going to prevail if you've got a good one. Yeah. You know, that's why I say they're much more utilitarian than like I would. My pointers could could care. Like I've had a rabbit flush on that same dog, Vegas, that I was just talking about. I've had yeah. a rabbit flush and he chased it maybe five or six yards and was like, I'm over it. You yeah. know, and it was a chase because, ooh, what's that? But then he realized it wasn't a bird. It ain't a bird. I'm, yeah. I'm good. Um now that's you know, that's that's gonna be the difference though between what you've got and what I've got. Now you've got a a, a truly versatile dog. Pointers don't care. Most of them, most of them don't care anything about fur. At least the ones that I've seen. Right, right. You know, They're um, hardwired for birds. In yep. fact, when I was teaching my dog, my lab to find dead bats, I got to talking with some people, and there's a there was a group that was training. Um, training uh dogs to do various types of wildlife work so they could find bat roost because of the guano uh underneath the roost they were training them to find squirrel nests whatever i got down in the conversation with this person about that and again not a versatile or a pointing guy Mm -hmm. i said well what about you'd think something like a german short-haired would be great at this and she goes nope Nope. they're too freaking hardwired for birds yep I put them if I if I expect them to do one job, they're going to go do the other because that's what they're freaking hardwired for. So they yep. they were just using labs for this wildlife research they were training the dogs for, and they weren't using versatile dogs it's, for that particular type of. Yeah, of I mean, you would, and, and it's funny you say that. You would think though, because short hairs are they're just like poodle one. They're supposed to be known for that, but I have seen. More short hairs that when you, they're kind of like the jack of all trades, but they're like really good at certain parts of that jack of all trades and kind of right. get bent on there. And right. so what I what I what I've seen again, and I, I'm nobody's short hair expert, but I know me. Most people know I talk trash about them. Um, I, I joke and do all that kind of stuff. But what I've seen from short hairs is they get really fixated on a type of game. And don't let that dog really like that type of game. Yeah, they'll kind of do that. You know, they'll point birds and stuff like that. But some of them are like fur nuts. Really? Yeah, man. Yeah. Um, Well, I had a buddy with a draw there that loved porcupines, and that's not a good combination. (laughs) (laughs) He'd crack that dog out of the box and uh, pretty much pulling the pliers out and meet him within five minutes. I'm like, I'll see you later. I'm going hunting. Yeah, man. And and, and and see, and it's dog. And and it's interesting, even with them, it's sometimes it's like a, I don't know if it's like a revenge thing. They get nuts, man. And they are just like, oh, you stabbed me once, Mr. Porcupine? Like, all right, cool. We're going to kill him. And it it keeps. Kill your ass. (laughs) Dude. Like, and then some of them get like that about skunks, man. Yeah, that's a bad combo, too. So my first dog, um, she had a propensity to kill Nutria. Really? Um, yeah, we were living in Western Oregon and we hunted this particular area that had a lot of Nutria. And I'm like, where the hell is Thule at? Running around. I hear hear sloshing around out in the marsh. I'm just going out to my duck blind at three o'clock in the morning and uh, call her back in. And here she comes with a 
freaking nutrient draping out of wow. her mouth, <laughs> which is dangerous because they can tear up a dog pretty good. If they they're, they're not she little. Never, never had an injury. Really? She almost killed them. Yeah, she was a nutrient killer. I bet she killed probably two dozen of them over the years I hunted with her. It's unbelievable. Can you now? Can you trap those or do anything with nutrient? Out you that can. Way? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. You can. They're just you know. And introduce big muskrat. Yeah. But uh, they do a lot of damage. But anyway, I was just kind of interesting. It, it, it does, uh, it does make, it did make me think of that because some dogs just get fixated on just, things. That's just what they And I'm not do. kidding. I, I, this friend of mine, I mean, that dog, he always found a porcupine. Didn't matter where we were hunting. Yeah. It just always found the damn porcupine. Yeah. But I think back to the, you know, testing versus, you know, hunting dogs I, I i may have misconstrued the question early on i think from just the breeding and genetic perspective mm-hmm. and we touched on this a little bit i think it's always a good idea to get field stock absolutely field and hunting stock uh, i i probably misconstrued that a little bit so that definitely is something every hunter wants is some good 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 field stock but mm-hmm. uh, i i think definitely the the folks that train 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 and hunt test hunt test or or nab to test and or field trial and don't hunt them enough there's 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 going to be some differences from just a pure like a guide dog that sees a thousand birds Mm -hmm. a season you know kind of thing there's just going to be some differences there and uh, And it's going to show up (laughs) right for wild birds right well and and see that's the thing now what i do like and, and 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 this is something that i've seen um matter of fact i'll show you something kind of cool check this out so this book right here um georgia georgia florida field trial um club so in it it, and it's it's a it's the 100 year book um for the uh field trial club down here that all the plantation owners are in right you you the only way that you can be in it is if you own a plantation well Hmm. Um, I was fortunate enough to get that book for my mentor because he's in it. Like he, he ran dogs for some of them and he passed it on to me for a historical reference. Well, in it, um, one of the owners named Charlie Chapin, he owns El Soma plantation in it. He, uh, talks about how down here there is an, you know, there, there's this, this, this kind of emphasis on breeding, you know, field trial stock with guide dog stock. Right. And a lot of the times they come from the same litters, but there's that push and pull between like, you know, how much of this field trial and how much of this just, I guess, meat dog, if you want to call it like that. Like, right, how right. much do we want to push and pull with that? Right. And and that's something that I'm really interested in now. Like, you, you know, like I said, I was telling you before, like, I'm really interested in buying big running all age dogs. You know, that's just my thing. And. Um, and I've really gotten into the history and all of that stuff with it. Um, this particular, uh, strain, the, the, the rebel strain of pointers, like I'm really kind of high up on that right now. And, um, you know, but they, those dogs run, you know? And so how do you, how do you, how do you teach a dog that's bred for field trialing? And, and most trials nowadays are, are, are pin bird trials, right? But then there's a lot of wild bird trials too that that kind of still go on. Well, how do you train a dog like that to still be a manageable hunting dog? You know, when you get out in the piney woods, right? Like, how do you right. and how do you, how do you teach a dog to to hunt with all its natural desire, but still do it at four, five, six hundred yards away? 
Right. You yeah, know, it's an interesting question. <laughs> you know, you know, it, it, and it raises questions for me, uh, not on the subject we're really talking about, but you yeah. say big running dogs, three, four or 500 yards. How do you deal with that when you got property boundary issues? Yeah. You know, uh-huh. I, I, and I, it's a question I have because, you know, if this little guy that I have now starts running big, which I want him to do as much as he wants, but right. I don't want him getting out of the wildlife area. Right. Or breaking out onto somebody's private land when I'm hunting the edge of a national forest or something. So mm-hmm. that that that's that'll be an interesting transition for me. It's going to be <laughs> interesting. I mean, it really is. Now that now that is where you know, and this is a a, a sponsor plug, shameless plug, but that I just got that Garmin 200i, um, uh-huh. and that is really good about kind of showing you that stuff. In addition to you know Onyx maps and things like that, but um shoot man i worry about that all the time like uh, fortunately i i run my dogs in places that i still got well but well you know i'm so deep into the the wma nine nine times out of ten like i'm not worried about 600 yards right right um now this is a catch that i have to worry about at 600 yards or 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 500 or even 400 whatever the case these larger running dogs we got gators down here yeah you do yeah, that's the other thing I wondered. How do you know they're not going to get in trouble? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, I yeah. what what I try to do there, and I'm speaking specifically on this one spot that I'm hunting. I'm thinking about this one area. Um, I try to take. Unfortunately, the coveys where I know where they are, they're not close enough to the water for me to be. For for thus far, I've not been super concerned. Right. This new dog is the one that's going to drive me up to Waldo. Right. And right. He runs bigger than all the other ones. Um, yeah. But I try to get at least a, it, it, shoot, man, at least a mile away from the water where I know that there's a, a caution gators sign. Yeah. Um, now, the other benefit of it is I, we, at some point in South Georgia, it does actually get cold. So the gators start to just, you know, start to hibernate yeah. too. But it takes a minute for that to happen. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Um, a minute, a minute, you may not get back. <laughs> a minute, you might not get back, man. So, and so there, there's always that, um, it's that push and pull between like, how big do I want the dog to run and for what reason? And again, how am I going to teach them to, you know, to handle birds and still yeah. handle those birds and still move to a formalized setting and still be able to, you know, perform there. Right. right. <laughs> you know, and some of the stuff that we hunt out here are, are is, uh, walk-in habitats yeah. and walk-in properties that are privately owned and offer up the public access. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not all full sections of land sometimes. And, and one of my favorite places to hunt in Nebraska, and I kill roosters in there every day. And I actually flushed a big covey of sharptails in there one time. They, 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 I, I didn't know they were there. And the dog was getting birdie over here on one side of the ridge that I was hunting. And they flushed behind me. But <laughs> it caught me, off, caught me off guard. It's, it's a pheasant field, totally yeah. a pheasant field, big, tall cover, good stuff. And, um, but it's thin, man. I mean, it's thin. It's a, it's hundreds of yards wide and really long. Yeah. And so, and, and 
part of this part of the cast we're talking now is just me contemplating what I, the transition <laughs> from my lab, which I never have the problem with. I uh-huh. always know where they're at and I can always keep them on the property mm-hmm. versus a, a bigger running dog that might end up on the neighbor's place. Yeah. So, and, and a game warden will tell you that the dog is the extension of the hunter. Mm-hmm. So they, <laughs> I don't know anybody that's ever technically been written a ticket for trespassing because their dog was running over in the neighbor's but yard. It's something but to think about though. It's possible. Yeah, yeah it's it, possible. It, it's something to think about. But I mean, honestly, man, you know, you've done enough hunting now. It's the breed is going to be the biggest learning curve. The The hunting aspect is not going to be a thing. Sure. You know, you yeah. guys are you're going to learn how to hunt with that dog just like you did with your labs, you know, and, yep. and, you, and, and you had to get, you know, get adjusted to how they hunted in their style and things. And right. And, and y'all have figured out, and you might mess around and get a, get some of that crazy. And you like, I got and like that dog rolling out there like that. <laughs> so as long as he holds, that, look, he holds that's all I was, as long as my, uh, allows me to get up there in that's time. It. So yeah. as long as, as long as they are holding it, I'm fine. And, and it's doable too. Like I see what I'm most inspired by, honestly, by, a lot of you guys out West, when I see pointing dog stuff is the fact that like these chucker dudes, right? Like those dogs range. Oh, they have to. And they get, and they stand yeah. rock solid till yeah. the hunter gets there. Yep. So it can be done. It's just a matter of just time, man. That's all it is. Yeah. And, yep. that, and that first season is always terrible. <laughs> better be careful dude you come out and hunt with me you're gonna want to make that an annual trip oh i i I have already i have already made that up in my mind i told my wife i was like i go hunt with ed arnett all right cool let's go do it i just need to find it i need to figure out when i can go but i want to i really do want to get out there kids and keep your kids in school and bring your wife out with you and make it a vacation dude well see the best part about it is and i'm gonna say this and keep my fingers crossed they got grandparents here that live ah. in the city, so <laughs> and their grandparents love keeping Perfect. them. So, Perfect. <laughs> so, well, Ed, I'm gonna add that to the podcast, man. I uh, I yeah, wanted to get fun. that section that was a good in there. Discussion. I better get this puppy out. He's ready to piss in the house again. He, he had a hell of a time with this dog. Really? Males are always worse than females, but uh-huh. this one is ticked up. But he hasn't. He's been good. He hadn't peed the house in about a month now. So you so consider good. it a blessing, man. I, now that, because I got kennel dogs, I don't miss that. When I had my dogs inside, oh my gosh. Yeah. And, and yep. doing it. But, you know, in a, a month, he pretty much got it, though, man. Yep. So, well, look, right. I, I appreciate it, man. And I'm going to be bugging oh, no, you now. Great. This fun. was fun. Enjoy chatting with you, buddy. Yeah, um, so, yeah, nail down some dates and. And let's make something happen. Let's do it. Uh, it's looking like I'm gonna I'm gonna cash in early on some of my off days. They won't mind, and uh, and I and I'll let you know which one those are. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm so serious. Like Project. I'm glad you picked up on where I was going with that one. Yeah. <laughs> and we should try to overlap it somewhat with Paul when he's here. I'll introduce you to Paul and the Vortex. Maybe okay, make that connection. That may manifest into something. I think it can, know. man. I think you never it, know. Don't, don't they have a podcast too? I think Stephen Ranella was do, on I'm, it. If they do, I'm not aware of it. 
Vortex um, Optics. A lot of these companies do now, and more of them more all the time are doing podcasts, but I'm yeah. not aware that Vortex does. I, I feel I could be wrong. I could be very, but I feel like I heard something with Vortex hey. and Steven Ranella on it before. They they may. Yeah. I mean, he, of course, has his podcast. Of course. Of course. Yeah. So I, uh, I, I, uh, one of these days I'll get out of there, but anywho, like I said, I'll get those dates nailed down for you, man. And I'm, I'm looking forward to getting out there, dude. This was a really fun, fun conversation. Yeah. Well, let's look forward to continuing it. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. We'll take, right. take that puppy on out there, man. And I'm going to uh, get a couple of articles knocked out before I turn on in to sleep. Okay. Sounds good. All, All right. right Thanks, and I'll man. have this up. Um, I'll give you a date on when this is going to get published. Yeah, too. Let me know when it's coming up. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Cool. We'll Try and promote it with TRCP, maybe. Look, I would, I would love that one now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell him to promote it. So I'll, I'm a, I'll call Witt and bug him too. So and yeah. say, hey, look, how do we do this? So um, did you get him? Have you done a cast with him? No, I want to do. I want to though. But so yeah, I'm give starting me a good one to talk big picture politics. He's he's mm-hmm. real good at that. So real, get this far better policy than I am, dude. I well. He, Honestly, he was the one that really got me more keen on it. And so what I want to do with yeah. Wit, um, I'm starting another podcast. Um, I haven't said anything about it, but I'm starting another one with my wife. Um, because my wife and oh, I, nice. we both started not my minority outdoor alliance. So this next one is gonna be called Our Outside. And it's gonna oh, be much more big picture, you know, big picture yeah, stuff. Um and not just bird dogs and, and, and everything kind of surrounding that much more big picture. That'll be, that'll be a fun one. Yeah. So it'll, I it'll be it, cool. Need it quite frankly. Well, yeah. and I, but see, again, I want to do it. Yes. I want to talk about, you know, access, diversity, inclusion, all of that stuff, but I want to do it. Um, following some of the interests that I have for, for, and the reasons that I have for it, but then also taking my wife's approach who, is strikingly different from me. Like she doesn't, she doesn't hunt, you know, she's out, she loves the outdoors, but for a different reason, it's much more spiritual for right. her. Um, and so I think that's important. Yeah. I think that's great. Yeah. So, yeah. um, you know, my so, wife only hunts because she gets to spend more time with me. Uh, she does. Hunt. <laughs> yeah. She and that's a good reason a though. She's killed. She's killed a couple antelope, four antelope, I think. And, uh, and some birds, handful of birds. So she's shot a sage grouse. Yeah. And uh, so, but you know, she's not a predator. I, I, when I, when I differentiate kinds of hunters, uh-huh. you know, it's like I'm, I'm, I'm a predator. Yeah. I, and I would, I am a sometimey predator. <laughs> I'm sometimey about it. I like, I and like I, getting out there and doing it, but like, I am like Kool Aid addicted to bird dog work. Yeah. I, and I love the dog work too. I, yep. you know, for me, part of it, and that's the melding of the science and the love for wildlife and the predator part for me is just outsmarting them. Oh yeah. I, I love outsmarting critters. That's yeah. why I get, I'm anal as can be about decoy spreads and how mm-hmm. I set them out and that kind of thing. And it, it just, but it's the outsmarting part. Yeah. That's, that's why I consider myself a predator. So, well, and I quite frankly, I didn't get into the comrade. You know, everybody's like, oh, it's about family and cut bullshit. <laughs> hey, it's about chasing animals down and getting meat down. Exactly. You know, it's like, I, I, I'd say up until maybe six, seven years ago, 
maybe 10 years ago, yeah, I hunted 90% of the time by myself mm-hmm. and the dogs. Mm-hmm. And it just, it's just my thing. And I still like going by myself. Now I'm just more cognizant of my age and my mortality and, and the fact my wife likes me going with another dude. Right. So, right. <laughs> um, so just so I'm safe, but mm-hmm. I get that. And I do like the camaraderie I always have, but push come to shove, man. I'm right, we going hunting. So what, what is that? I'm going hunting whether you're here or not. So. Okay, guys, that's the end of the episode of the Gundog Notebook Podcast with Ed Arnett. Um, before we close out, I just want to say, you know, just a couple of thoughts, man. Just thank you. But but look, I'm one thing I'm really excited for is my horse, Regal Rebel. I've got some shares in that horse through my race horse, um, that platform. And that horse didn't necessarily do all that tight. You know, and that's fine. We It happens. But I like the way the horse ran and there were some lung issues and the horse knew to stop itself. But what I really want to talk about is Forbidden Kingdom. And I'm really, really, really um, proud of this horse that I've, I've started investing in. And, uh, you know, the horse won first place um, this past weekend. Um, he's an American colt two-year-old American goat by American Pharaoh. Um, and of course, American Pharaoh horses got all the hype and the horse lived up to it. Um, but the horse just did well. It just ran really, 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 really well. So I'm pretty high on that outside of uh, bird dogs. The other thing is, guys, come to the Minority Outdoor Alliance Festival. Come check us out. Go to minorityoutdooralliance.org and get yourself tickets. Get the dinner tickets, $20. Um, And thank you to all of my sponsors. But let's start with the Charles Jordan Group, guys. Go to the charlesjordangroup.com, charlesjordangroup.com, and let Charlie know I gave you a call. If you need some help with marketing, the Gundog Notebook uses it itself, and, and we are in the process of some some significant changes on our end thanks to the charles jordan group um onyx hunt our title sponsor check onyx hunt out i know y'all were scouting over the uh break so you know i know you're using it but those of y'all that ain't using it use my promo code gdn20 get yourself 20 percent off and let's go ahead and start this hunting season off right get you some some public land uh pins public land pins i like that all right, Yukonuba Sporting Dog, AYA Fine Guns, Biometric Supplements. Guys, that's the realest. Um, go check it out. That's what my dogs are on, and, and they loving it. They look good. Um, I keep my dogs trim, as you know, but they can run all day, and that's what I'm looking for out of my line. Um, and all of my affiliates and sponsors, um, I'm sorry, not my affiliates and sponsors, my affiliates and the rest of my friends that support the podcast, guys. Thank y'all so much for supporting the Gundog Notebook Podcast. And we'll see y'all next episode. And we'll see y'all next week.